Lucifer Moon's Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire That's right, it's the same joke again. Because recycling jokes is what we second-rate comedians do. Third-rate comedians, even. Welcome to Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. Live Q&A follow-up discussion to the We Should Start Back Reverse reading of the prologue, and I am joined today by Painkiller Jane. Say hello. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and also Crow Food's daughter. Say hello. Hey, guys. And of course, Crow Food's daughter is from the Disputed Lands YouTube channel. Y'all know her by now, I should think, but I'm sure one of my mods will drop the link in the chat. Oh, wait a minute. Crow Food's daughter, you're a mod. You can drop your own link in the chat. We'll see. No, yeah. someone, someone will get it there for you. You're a guest today. You're not a mod. You're a, you're a guest. And uh, my, of course, normal, the other guest who's normally with me is San Rixian, the Hand of the Dragon, Mother of Drawgons. But uh, she's a little under the weather today. She was wanting to try to draw anyway, and I told her, no, you need to rest up. Get healthy. Get healthy. If you try to push yourself through the illness, you'll just, you know, prolong it so she's she's resting up uh but sends her warm regards and of course uh the last couple of weeks she has cranked out some masterpieces from the waymar royce short uh sword shattering prologue scene to the jaharis and alisan dragons uh flying and dancing uh masterpiece that she did last week so yeah i told her to, i told her to take the week off like you've contributed enough sanry you could take the week off but of course we all send her healing wishes, and lots of warm hugs. So that's, that is that. Um, yes, so thanks for joining me, everyone. Sean E, 420 Super Chat, Ritualistic. Prayers sang, rituals performed, the body of Garth. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, thank you. So thanks for joining me, Amanda and Painkiller Jane. So uh, let me start off by just uh, opening up to general thoughts on the idea of reverse reading of the prologue, reverse reading chapters, or even some of the stuff we got into in the prologue. Um, Amanda, I'll, I'll let you go first since you weren't uh, with us when we were talking about it two weeks ago. What are, uh, yeah, any, any general thoughts that you have? I think that that find is re- really very interesting. Um, like you said, once you find your pivot point, you can kind of retrace your steps and possibly see what the, um, you know, what the possible events were that were kind of like this, almost like this um, retribution and redemption arc where, you know, the last hero possibly um, becomes resurrected, um, you know, um, gets reforges his sword. He He's able to um, fight the others. And it's, it basically does go basic you know, in reverse, he, he's, um, fought back. He's pushed back. He's basically put into a corner. Um, he probably dies. He becomes resurrected and the events kind of just go back in the opposite way. Um, and so I think that's very interesting. And I think that that can possibly work as, you know, um, a redemption arc as well. So, um, he might be actually trying to, 
um, do right, put right what he may have put wrong in the past. And so that's something that I'm going to be kind of looking for when I'm doing my rereads. But I, I think it's a great find, really. So good job. Yeah, thank you. And that's a great point about redemption arcs. Um, that's one of the things that when, you know, like I was saying, you know, was listening to Rusted Revolver and Ravenous talk about starting back. And they were mostly approaching it from that thematic point of people finding that, that point where they, they turn things around and start working back, at, like you said, atoning for wrongs. And it really clicked. I was like, oh, well, my whole idea about Azor High is that, yes, he broke the moon. And was the bad guy at the beginning, uh, but either him or his son or his sword that he made was somehow used to sort of put the genie back in the bottle, right the wrongs that were being done. So it, it really clicked in as as thematically um, just really fitting with the sort of War for the Dawn uh, story that we're assembling all of us together piecemeal with all these different researches that we're doing into Grey King Echoes and Azor High Echoes and Nissa Nissa Echoes, like we're assembling, you know, maybe not a specific story, but a, a general story with with some choices. You know, I always say, oh, we could have been his son or he could have been his brother or, you know, and it's hard to know for sure. But we're we're definitely getting down to to a rough idea and redemption arcs, pivot points that really does seem like it's right at the center of the heart and conflict. Uh, and it's it's so nice because it unites a lot of the symbolic and mythical themes uh, with the core of the narrative. Uh, that that you really get from reading the book, so that's why it really does feel like um like a good technique. And already some of the other myth heads have started reading other chapters backwards and finding some really interesting stuff. Um, a little bit later today, we're actually going to talk about something that Colin Longstrider wrote. Uh, he took the Bran falling chapter where he's dreaming of falling and then finally flies and almost gets impaled on the ice spires and all that. And uh, he did a really great analysis, flipped that one around backwards. And uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. We're going to talk about it later. So definitely seems to be a thing. Painkiller Jane, what do you say to that? Um, I love it. Personally, I think it's great that um, it's a much better device that he's doing instead of straight out saying, okay, we're going to time travel or this green seer is going to try time travel. I think that's, if he had done that, I would have been like, Oh my God, George, why, why? But this way, him doing this to the text and marrying it with redemption arcs, marrying it with the overall, um, theme of bringing back the seasons or broken wheel, a uh, wheel of time. I think it's just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, we can all see Martin playing with a lot of time reversal ideas. And, you know, everyone knows I'm a little bit hesitant with actual time travel theories, you know, anything more than like very limited uh, time sort of messing with a little bit like some such as we see with the Hodor thing in, in the TV show, something like that makes sense, like it could happen in the books. More than that, although I'm, I generally hold back on the time travel theories, but I do think this is more like we're this is more what he's talking about, the history rhyming, uh, about righting the wrongs of the past, po possibly the wrongs of your ancestors or your own wrongs. Uh, so uh, my name, uh, Isabel Went, uh, regular myth head, says, uh, this morning it occurred to me that starting back resurrection themes could also pertain to the oppressed regaining their agency. Uh, yes, very much so. Um, for example, you know, the silenced woman, theme that that melanie and gretchen have both been 
hitting on. That's essentially the story of Nissa Nissa, right? She's she's silenced. Her tongue is cut. Her throat is cut like Stoneheart. She's sent into the weirwood trees who are notoriously silent. Uh, but then things come out of the weirwood trees, whether it's resurrected green zombie assassins or the others. The trees are sending things out uh, and, you know, sort of regaining agency or taking vengeance, depending on which one we're talking about. So, yeah, that's a really important theme. That's a good point, Isabel. Uh, somebody says, uh, LML, my daughter was wearing antlers like that the other day. Yeah, antlers are great. Everyone should wear antlers. I said that the other day. Um, Jojo Lady Dane says, Euron parallels the Bloodstone Emperor. Could there be any redemption for him? Probably not. Um, Euron has probably gone past that point of redemption, I would say. Um, he's crash landing into the sun, for sure, I would say. And, you know, it's possible that that's what happened, that the original sinner the original bloodstone emperor or whatever he didn't redeem himself it could be that his son uh took up his sword and did the redemption uh and so you know the the father may have been past redemption that is possible we do see characters like that in the book i think euron would be one of them i don't see euron like apologizing to anyone (laughs) tywin tywin yeah yeah tywin exactly he he's did not have a redemption arc (laughs) he just went out all shitty. All shitty back. Which is which is interesting because you know at the end Tyrion is Tywin writ small, so he's probably the one that's going to do the redemption for House Lannister in a way. Rusted revolvers fired up for time travel. Let's see. Um, yeah, Aziz says like those aren't lying around the house; those are his real antlers. Yeah, your children could be growing antlers. You never know. Could be. Uh. And then someone else says, my daughter saw his antlers once and totally thinks he's a real reindeer. That's true. No, it is true. I am a reindeer. Be, I wouldn't be upset. All right. Let's see. And uh, hey, Alana Prestane of Bravos. I got one of your questions queued up for later, by the way. Um, yeah. Someone says, if brand time travels, I quit. Yeah. Like I said, I, I think we're only going to see very limited uh, messing with the timeline. You know, something... Not not a time traveling person, but somebody who accidentally puts their finger on an event in the past and like kind of sends it haywire. I think that's what we're going to see is that any amount of like trying to mess with the past instantly has bad consequences. Um, And that's mostly what we saw on the show. It's not that like all of a sudden brand can travel through time and put thing ideas in people's heads. And he's actually brand the builder and this and that like, no, green seers have the ability to view all of time. And if they're really, really powerful, their their perception and their consciousness can sort of put a finger on there and like mess things up a little bit. I, I, that's how I see it. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? The way I see it is, is that George is making commentary on whether uh, free will and choice affects the future and the past. And then um, trying also to talk about um, determination or fate or what have you um, for heroes and things like that. Yeah, I've never been a fan of the brand is the a Nike's king and brand is the every single brand that's ever been in the Stark family tree. Um, and so I think that, you know, what you were saying about um, brand just being so powerful that he can kind of just, um, you know, leave a footprint on, you know, space and time, just more like a, an echo is probably more what he's capable of doing. He seems more powerful than 
um, what, um, at least in the this show, he seems more powerful than what we know Green Sears can do. And so I think it's interesting how his powers are starting to build. At least on, on the show, we don't really know how what's going to happen within the books. This could be a show convention. Um, but somebody has said in the past that they'll hold the door. Um, they had a conversation with George R. R. Martin in the elevator. And um, he, I think that he held the door for George and he made the comment, oh, Hodor, um, that's is comes from hold the door and George, I guess, chuckled. And he said, you don't know how close you really are. And so that that's probably going to be in the books. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be interesting to see how it's going to play out. Yeah. I think the, the main question is um, which door will it be? You know, there's a, there's a few doors. There's the, the black gate, there's the door in the crypts, you know, there's potentially, you know, the door in the wall at Castle Black even. Uh, it could be, that's like the most straightforward, obvious door that you would try to hold against the whites would be literally the door in the wall. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Uh, what George has said is that, you know, hold the, Hodor means hold the door. So we know that Hodor dies holding the door. And we know that there's some kind of time travel weirdness where Bran is somehow involved in the event that makes hodor you know uh the way he is uh but was isn't it true you guys um that in the books the story was that like hodor went down to the crypts one day and came out and would only say hodor it was either that or like there's something about him going into the crypts and getting scared and like he won't go back into the crypts anymore and that's why bran had to like really push him to get him to go down there when is he that, saw the ghost of his father, am I? How? What's? What am I trying to remember? Is that? Is that? Is that Theon talking about um, why Hodor ever became? But I thought it was because he had a fever. I, I thought that's what it was. Mm. I, I'm so, gonna have to. There's a scene where Hodor was scared to go down into the crypts, or they were talking about it like after the fact. Um, and I'm gonna see if I can pull up the quote but uh yeah it, it's more of a scene than than just you know people talking about his history and why he he says hodor um let me see and while i'm looking for that um i don't know how long yeah, it's I gonna take the, i see the one where like he's telling maester lewin that hodor won't go down into the crypts um you know and he it was like he was scared uh and bran got really mm-hmm. mad about it but there's that's not what i'm looking for there's something else okay what interests me about the dynamic between Hodor and um, Bran and all of that time travelishness there is that George, if it does go down the way it did in the show, in the books, it would show the – it's like a commentary on um, the direct influence that a person has on another person and basically derailing another person and their life by direct by that direct contact that he does yeah and and again the main impression that i have is that this is something like messing with time is bad and any little bit of it that's done is going to have bad consequences so i just it doesn't make sense that um in the end we're going to see that bran is this all time traveling master who's all these people in the past like that's a cool idea and it's sort of like a different story. You know, I, I can see why people are enamored of the idea. It is an interesting idea. 
Um, it's just more of a kind of a science fiction thing, or maybe like you might say high fantasy. Um, so, you know, it's a cool story. It's just, I don't think it's, it's this story. That, that's what I'd say about yeah, it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I maybe was uh, hallucinating there or just um, as far as that Hodor thing. Um, it says that Theon Greyjoy had once commented that Hodor did not know much, but no one could doubt that he knew his name. Old Nan had cackled like a hen when Bran told her that and confessed that Hodor's real name was Walder. No one knew where Hodor had come from, she said, but when he started saying it, they started calling him by it. It was the only word he had. Yeah, so it doesn't say when that change happened. Um, I was uh, I was tripping there, I guess. I, I was tripping, too, because <laughs> I thought he had a fever, and then... <laughs> All right, well, in any case... Um, yeah, uh, Rusted says he's voting for the Waldor. <laughs> oh, right, because Walder, like Walder, his real name is Walder, so maybe it'll be the Waldor. Waldor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. I like it. Good job, <laughs> Good Rusted. Going, Rusted. Yeah. Uh, there it is. Well, and it would make sense as a Frey name, as a Frey name who's, a, you know, the the Lord of the Crossing. Right. So there you go. The Lord of the Crossing, he's got the whole bridge symbolism, the twin towers that are like the twin moons uh, with the river in between. Uh, yeah, totally. Uh, confirmed. You guys you guys all remember, Rusted Revolver solved it right yes. here live on Mythical Astronomy Starry Wisdom Sunday. There it is. <laughs> Y'all remember. Job, Hold, the Hold the wall door. Hold the wall door. Love it. Nice. I like that. Uh, well, that makes me happy. All right. Yeah, Rusted beating Aziz to the puns. Dude, Rusted and Aziz could have a pretty good pun off. Uh, we should we should set that up sometime. That would be good. Yeah, that'd be a good one to be a fly in the you know, fly in the wall. Make your brain pop in like five <laughs> minutes. Okay, let's see here. Um I'm scrolling back through the chat because I think I saw some interesting stuff there while I was flying through. Uh, okay, you know what? There's a good question uh, that I took from a patron that ties in here. So let me go ahead and read it because it fits. This comes from Lady Shar, wielder of the Sacred Shard, Ice Priestess, Avatar Witch, and as of just recently, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Scorpio. Thank you, Lady Shar. Bumping up the Patreon support means a lot. In any case, she says, sorry, this is so long. It's actually not very long. Let me start with a quote that leads to the question. A Dance with Dragons, Brand 3. Certain moths live their whole lives in a day, yet to them that little span of time must seem as long as years and decades to us. An oak may live 300 years, a redwood 3,000. A weirwood will live forever if left undisturbed. To them, seasons pass in the flutter of a moth's wing, and past, present, and future are one. My thoughts, this is Lady Shar talking again, my thoughts that bring me to the question. We should start back, as you've shown us, means several things. The circular nature of life, history repeating itself, day to night, winter to spring, life to death, going back to correct mistakes you've made, or even correcting someone else's mistakes or completing someone else's journey. That's all that we, uh, all the stuff we just talked about earlier today. So then um, Lady Shar says, even George telling us that we should reread the books. Everything is out of balance. The life cycle's been interrupted. The dead are walking. The seasons are out of whack. And we need to go back and fix what is broken to restore the balance. So here's my question. We're told the weirwoods live outside the stream of time and that they don't die unless someone poisoned them. Uh, even the cut down trees still hold life in the roots. That's true. 
we are shown blood sacrifice to the weirwoods repeatedly. Uh, it's implied that it's needed to give them a face, which is probably true also. Think of the Isle of Faces made all at once. How many people were killed to form the pact? Many, many people. Um, just like Azor High sacrificed Nissa Nissa, and he's a bad guy. So her question is, are the weirwoods themselves an abomination? Is their very existence breaking the cycle? Um, that's a good question. And that is uh, touching on some of the ideas that I've gotten into a little bit in a couple of episodes, as far as I've suggested that the weirwoods don't look happy. Um, they look like they're in pain. They have the silent scream. They're basically uh, being invaded. The green seer's mind is like a parasite taking over their mind. They're essentially the Hodor and the green seer is Bran inhabiting their body and doing things with it. So it almost, uh, I've also suggested that the idea of a white tree really suggests to a W I G H T white tree, because the, the trees are like zombies that are being controlled by the green seers, just like the whites are being controlled by, you know, Knights King or whatever is animating all the others and whites and stuff. So I, it's, yes, I do think the creation of the weirwoods with faces and all that may be an abomination. It may be that human green seers were never meant to exist. Um, I've speculated that the first human green seer was created when Azor High essentially killed Nissa Nissa to invade the Weirwood Net, which is completely a hostile act, just like Waymar, you know, invading the forest with without a care or heed for any of the caution flags that are going up. He's just charging ahead. Um, that's essentially Azor High invading the Weirwood Net. So, yes, I do think that that is possible. That we don't, we shouldn't have done it, and the answer might be shutting it down. So, what do you all think about all that? So, I think that. Um... Personally, I think the werewoods, um, we know that the werewoods are trees. The werewoods are a part of nature. And so to think that a, a tree could be an abomination, I, I don't think that's the case. But what you were saying about what humans are doing or what green seers are doing to manipulate those trees, to manipulate what their powers or manipulate what they have, um, for their own benefit, I think that that specific act is is an abomination. And so, what you were saying about how the um, trees seem to be emoting anger and pain, and um, you know, I I think that that is probably showing um, na nature's reaction to that. So, yeah, painkiller. Um, I agree. Um, actually, um. I, as what you said, you know, with the, uh, with the W I H, um, W I G H T, uh, for, uh, as a, you know, pun on white, um, I always thought that the, um, uh, the heart trees and the shade of the evening trees are like corrupted versions of the golden heart trees of the summer island of the summer islands mm -hmm. as a way. Those are very, I, I was very interested they're, when I read about that. They're talking trees as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, um, and uh, they're talking trees. So for me, it's kind of like that. I mean, yeah. and they're also raided yeah. by uh, slavers and, and pirates and things like that. So, And there's a golden tree in the myth of one of the children of Garth as well, correct? Um, yes. Rowan of Gold Tree. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So and it deals with a broken know, heart mm -hmm. instead. So heart trees could be broken hearted 
gold. That's um, really, gold, that's really cool. Trees. Well, I like that. All of this lines up with the whole oak tree summer king symbolism because the oak hearts live in a uh, golden grove and Ari's oak hearts, oak leaves are always threaded in gold um, on his, that's their, is green and gold is basically their colors. Uh, so yeah, the whole idea of a golden tree or golden heart tree, essentially symbolically, it's the same thing as talking about an oak tree, which is the, 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 the tree of the summer king and it's always associated with gold. Uh, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So <clears throat> basically, um, I don't know if the weirwoods are literally made from oak trees, but symbolically, they are like a dead oak tree. And if you remember, there was that Night's Watch brother, Giant, um, who he said, how do you like my castle, Lord Snow? And he's literally turned a dead oak tree, the hollow of a dead oak tree, into his castle. And he's a small man named Giant. So he's a he's a child of the forest symbol, and he scampers up the tree like a squirrel, too. So he's absolutely like a child of the forest Night's Watch dude making a dead oak tree his home. And that is essentially like the story of the corruption of the weirwoods. They are like dead oak trees in that they are the winter king tree that's the opposite to the summer king tree of the oak. And we see also um, the uh, the wildlings, when they go south of the wall, they carve heart, uh, faces in three different trees. One's an ash tree. Uh, one is an oak tree. And it's, a, it's the monstrous one. It looks like it's angry and wants to tear up its roots from the ground and come charging after. So, like, this is really showing you, like, the oak tree, the summer king tree was mutilated and defiled. And now it is angry and it wants to pick up its roots like an ent and come roaring after you. And that's essentially the whole idea that a lot of people have come to, uh, that the, the others are some sort of reaction from the weirwoods, some sort of hostile antibody-like reaction, some sort of, you know, protectionary measure that sort of went haywire. Uh, and now the children of the forest who might have helped create the others are now trying to help, like, try to put them back in the bottle, the genie back in the bottle, if you will. Agreed. Yeah, anytime I stop talking, that means it's your turn. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree. I mean, oh, and uh, Green Girl, um... She just she just reminded me that Penny Tree in the middle of the teats is an oak tree as well with all that copper copper mm. stuff, you know, the little the nice sacrifices to it on it. The, so, the lightning rod symbolism yeah, of the copper pennies exactly. and the nails. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's the idea. That is the idea. And yeah, we're gonna I, I mentioned Colin Longstrider. So Colin Longstrider, the the eighth spoke of the wandering wheel, is a is a longtime patron and myth head. And he was really tickled by the we should start back, like I said, and he checked out that brand chapter. And a lot of the ideas that we're talking about popped up really strong in that chapter. So I can't wait to get to that. It's about a half hour essay, essentially. And I think at some point, maybe like an hour into this Q&A, we're just going to read it uh, and then talk about it because it fits in so well with the uh, with the prologue here. So KFAs and by the way, Amanda and Painkiller, it. Anything you see in the chat, feel free to uh, pipe up and, and read it. Yep. We have some super chats. Uh, oh, yes, that's right. I missed one. It was mm -hmm. in rupees, wasn't it? Or mm -hmm. rubles. Rubles, yeah. Uh, so thank you. Morianthar says, great stuff. LML keep repping the antlers, man. Uh, speaking of Bran and Hodor, do you think we'll ever see any actual consequences of Bran breaking the tenets of skin changing? Or is it just guidelines with no magical backing? Uh, no, there'll definitely be consequences. The question is... 
um, are those consequences ones that brand needs to pay because the action is needed? Um, that's sort of the theme that Martin shows us. Like, if you think about uh, Ned choosing to lie to try to save Sansa's life when he was in the when he was uh, in the black cells, or John uh, Corn Halfhand explaining to John that you may have to sacrifice your personal honor to protect the realm and fulfill your your higher duty as a Night's Watchman, which is really to protect the realm, even if you stain your Jon Snow reputation that might be necessary. So essentially what he's saying is that the thing you're going to do, John, is is technically wrong and you will pay consequences for it, but you need to do it anyway and just pay those consequences. And so I think that's kind of the theme that we're showing. Bran, maybe when he's, you know, there will be consequences, but it's possible that it's a necessary evil, if you will. Um, I, I definitely think the Bran-Hodor merging is coming. Like, I think at some point it's possible after Hodor dies uh, that Bran will use the dead body and become some sort of like giant ice warrior. I think that's very possible, very much in play. Dragon Slayer Hodor. Yeah, I mean, he's got the ice beard and the ice eyes and the the big red sword. He's got all the symbolism, you know. So, yeah. What I like about the tenets of skin changing, um, when I see things like that, like we are not supposed to do this, we are not supposed to do that, um, you know, like commandments, the skin changing commandments, I I tend to wonder, I try to think why, uh, why is this, why do we have this role? And so um, I'm wondering if this, uh, the tenets of skin changing or the skin changing commandments may actually relate to something that possibly happened in the past and um, and I'm wondering if it, if it actually goes all the way back to possibly the long night. Um, it talks about, you know, cannibalism, do not eat the flesh of others. Um, we have like the tale of the rat king and he has to eat the flesh, you know, of his of his um, kin. Um, I, I think that there may be some uh, it may inter- relate to actually maybe possibly some events that occurred during the long night. So. Um, so, yeah. It makes a lot. It makes a ton of sense. I've heard a few people propose something along those lines. Uh, even the Night's Watch oaths, a lot of them are like prohibitions mm-hmm. against what the Night King supposedly did. Uh, mm-hmm. So that makes sense. And the whole and there's a lot of people have been trying to figure out how exactly guest right, you know, figures into the Long Night events because it's such a taboo, you know. Right. Well, you know, <clears throat> you do have Brandon the Breaker. So, and no, nobody knows what he broke. So it's, you know, guess right. I mean, you know, it's, it's wide open. Guess right. Could be, could be what it was. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that it could be. I wonder if it has to do with like going into the weirwoods as like the, 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 the place of hospitality to which somebody came in and did murder, you know, as a guest or something like that. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's more of a concept than an actual, you know, thing that was broken. Um, I think it's probably either like an oath or guest right, something um, more metaphoric that we, you know, kind of have to figure out what he broke. But um, I, I think that that's pretty interesting. No, I agree because uh, we have Brandon the Burner who was specifically said to have burned the ships because of his dad, you know, taking the ships and disappearing, but we don't have anything for Brandon the Breaker. Right. Yeah. So it's got to be something. 
and hopefully we'll be able to figure it out or learn what it is. Well, so actually, I'm super glad you brought up Brandon the Shipwright and Brandon the Burner. So check the, I mean, this is, we can, we're ready to completely decode this now. So we've got the senior Brandon, he builds ships and sails off into the sea and disappears, right? So we know boats are metaphors for weirwoods, and especially when they sail into the sea and disappear. So the father went into the weirwood net, and not only that, he built a boat. So he created the vessel that you can use to sail. So this is Azor High creating the weirwood tree, calling down the lightning to set it on fire, carving the face into it, killing this and this, all that stuff, breaking into the weirwood net. So then what, what happens? His son sets the ships on fire and destroys them so that nobody can ever do that again and sail over the ocean again. And so that is exactly the shutting down the weirwood net idea, isn't it? Yes. No. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. The only thing, the only thing I will say in contrast to that is, how do we fit in the orphans of the green blood who became what they are, sailing on the green blood with their little ships, all decorated and nicely carved, um, after Nymeria set fire to her ships? Yeah, I was trying to figure out how the Nymeria thing links in. Um, so what are you saying exactly? Rephrase that. Um, the, what I'm saying is, is that the orphans of the green blood are kind of like green seers. They're, mm-hmm. they're surfing up and down, you know, uh, the green blood and they're not disappearing, but they're still kind of there. Uh, oh, they're like, okay. So what yeah. they are is they're kind of like the ships that went over the sea and disappeared and never came back, if you will, because they're stuck in the weirwood net. They live in the green blood now. And go up and down the green blood. They literally live on the river in the boats. They don't come out like they're they're stuck in there. That's like the the Brandon the senior the uh, the shipwright whose ships sailed off and were never never seen again. So mm-hmm. there's some people that like stay in there, and there's some people that like you know on the outside of it or trying to shut it down. So that's pretty interesting. There's and we also remember on the Isle of Lang, uh, Jar Har. Uh, the sea green emperor who sent everybody down into the caves eventually s- sealed them up on pain of death. So it's another, um, and this is the brand cauldron theory, essentially like um, brand, the blessed uh, goes inside the cauldron that's raising the dead and to shut it down, he blows it up from the inside essentially. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's what I think potentially brand might be destined to do. Uh, Calvin Graves says for the prohibition on violence, in the weirwood net could be like the ban on weapons in Vase Dothrak because Vase Dothrak, especially by the mother of the mountains, is is kind of it's like the city in the grass sea, if you will. Um, yeah, so that could make sense. It's more it's another idea that sort of points us towards guest ride and all that kind of stuff having to do with the weirwood net. And let's see here. Um, then we've got another super chat from Brian Culp who says, theory, dunk the lunk equals Hodor's ancestor. That's almost canon at this point, Brian, actually. That's, I think most people think that. Um, and because George has said that dunk has several ancestors running around, Brienne is almost definitely confirmed to be one, and Hodor is the other one that seems obvious. Uh, so then it says, uh, what if, here's the brilliant part, though. What if dunk died in his last act of valor holding the door to save the survivors of Summerhall. 
Well, that makes a lot of sense because we know that, but for the valor of the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, dot, 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 ink stain, ink stain, you know, mystery, mystery. Like some, the, the Dunk did something heroic there. Uh, and there's the very cool theory that his dream about sand, about drowning in sand, is like um, has to do with the uh, the way that the pyromancers uh, use use like sand in the ceiling as like a, a, a safeguard against wildfire. Like when they go in the um, the pyromancer. Amanda, are you, are you trying to help? Cut in and help me out here. No, I, I think you might have heard my, my knuckle pop. Oh, so. sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, so essentially, when when uh, when Tyrion goes into the pyromancers, um, whatever they call it, their caves down underground where they keep all their uh, all their jars mm-hmm. of wildfire, they explain that they have sand in the ceiling so that if if uh, if something catches fire, the very thin ceiling will collapse. The sand falls in and puts everything out. So Dunk has this dream of like drowning in sand or something like that. Um, and some people have figured out that perhaps this is what happens at Summerhall. The sand is involved and he's trying to save him or it's metaphorical. Uh, simply, you know, he's trying to save uh, uh, egg from the wildfire or whatever. But yeah, there could be a door holding in there. That would make a lot of damn sense, wouldn't it? That would, that would make a ton. Uh, he, I mean, he's as, he's as thick as a castle wall. So if we're going yeah. with wall dirt, the holding the wall door, if he's holding the door, oh. you know? <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I love that. I, when I read that super chat, I got excited reading that. Cause I, I thought that that makes so much them- thematic sense. Um, you know, we don't know what he did and it would just be perfect if Dunk actually held the door to save all those people that did survive Summer Hall. So um, I, I was super excited to see that. So I I'm got my fingers crossed that that's ha- what actually happens. Man, we're connecting the dots today. This is great. Good job, guys. Well, this is this is a this is a good example of the collaboration of the Mythhead community. It's it's just makes my heart go pitter patter, guys. It's great. Very great. So, yeah, he's and I haven't um, in the Weirwood compendium, which I'm going to be getting back to here shortly. Uh, I'm going to this is going to be fun. The next episode. So the last one we did was the Danny Greenseer episode. Right. So I'm going to continue the Danny Greenseer astral projection Weirwood horse idea. Uh, but eventually that's going to take us to Dunk and all of his horse riding because he's he rides a horse called Thunder. Uh, and this is a big green seer thing. And there's even one line that I'll, I'll spoil a little bit. There's one where egg is holding the reins and it said egg held thunder. And it was like, Oh, <laughs> I know what egg holds thunder. The moon egg holds thunder dragons. So in any case, there's all this really good uh, green seer stuff with dunk. Um, when he's in the fight with Arion during the, the trial by seven, um, he thinks about his lance as his long wooden finger, and he's trying to reach out and touch the dragon on his shield with his long wooden finger. So it's just like the the, the branches of the trees reaching up to scratch the moon, if you will. So there's a lot of really cool green seer astral projection horse stuff that's going to go on with um, Duncan Egg. So we're going to get into some of that cool Duncan Egg stuff. But yeah, the fact that he's thick as a castle wall, that's great. That's great. Too much fun. This is why, I mean, this is, this is what motivates me to do this stuff, man. It's just so much fun. You, you have these moments, you figure stuff out, 
you feel clever. You realize George is even more clever than you are. And he, he like, these are jokes that George told like 20 years ago, essentially in the book. So here we are laughing at them now. Like, oh, think it's a castle wall. Walder, I get it. Ah. <laughs> it's like George wrote these damn jokes literally 15 and 20 years ago. Good stuff. Everybody in the chat keeps bringing up uh, uh, Dunk's uh, mantra of oak and iron guard me well. And they're like, they're saying, well, uh, they're like oak and iron. Scotty's like oak and iron door guard them well because I'm dead and doomed to hell. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the other piece of it. So he's like he's like a wall and he's asking the door to guard him. So he's like he's like the ice wall beseeching the door like hold tight there buddy don't let anyone through you know that's really funny and then here's his descendant walder hodor derp derp yeah this is great this is great i'm too tickled to even concentrate now oh rusted thank you rusted (laughs) yeah teamwork rusted and brian culp uh with uh with uh giving us the um the parallel to dunk which led us to think of Painkiller Jane to say that, oh, that's right, he's thick as a castle wall. And it goes round and round. Thanks, everybody. Yep, this is this is what it's about. All about teamwork. We can all pat ourselves on the back. There you go. Rust, Rusted teased me the other day. He's like, oh, are you going to throw out your rotator cuff patting yourself on the back? Well, we can all throw out our rotator cuffs together and pat ourselves on the back. But, of course, again, all we're doing is figuring out the stuff that George did. So... We can only turn around and we're not worthy. Thank you, George. Thank you, George. Hashtag be nice to George. But anyways, it's fun. Uh, let's see here. Uh, to do, to do. And thank you. And please continue to come through the chat and uh, grab anything here when when I am talking. Yeah, Gal, Gal Yash. Yeah, Yash. I, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but anyway, she she pointed out a really good quote going back to um, what we were talking about with um, uh, the going back theme and affecting the future and, and the past type of situation. Um, and it talks about Andrew um, Farman, and he's like, just as a stone is thrown into a pond, we'll send out ripples in all directions. The evil that Andrew had wrought would spread across the land, touching the life of others long after and that Mm. makes complete sense i mean andrew is a man who is envious of his wife of his dragon wife who can fly and Mm. then he Mm. decides that he's going to kill all these women and then kill um kill all these women and girls and then himself try to make himself into a green seer and a flyer Flying out the window. Yeah, he's got all that failed green seer symbolism. There's a ton of ice, uh, white tower symbolism on Fair Isle, um, including their sigil. Uh, yeah, so that's that's something we got into last week a little bit. And yeah, that's that's worth expanding on for sure. Andrew Farman is pretty interesting. I could see a whole episode on Alyssa and Andrew and all the stuff they did. I mean, that was a lot of allegory there. It's pretty much all allegorical, in fact. Painkiller yeah. Jane, that's a great point that he was jealous of his dragon sister, uh, wife, not sister, but wife, um, who was ironically dating his sister. But mm-hmm. it's pretty good. Yeah. So maybe you just combine those two and you get the Amethyst Empress, uh, you know, idea there. So, Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, Reina is a Venus 
character. She's going, she's the queen of the East and the West type of situation. Ah, uh, yes, that's right. That's right. You mentioned that. I remember. That's true. She is literally called the queen in the West and then the queen in the East because she goes from Fair Isle to Dragonstone. Uh, very cool. That's nice. Yeah, there's, a, there's definitely some allegory going on there. And uh, and so that's so going back to what we were saying, Andrew Farman is the failed green seer and his evil spreads out like the ripples on a pond and touches the others. So you can that you can literally like hear the the ice cracking of the pond and the others coming out of the pond as a ripple effect of this failed green seer. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, Stone Dancer uh, Super Chat says, will you discuss War for the Dawn clues via Backwards Prologue? Yeah, that's pretty much what we're beating around the bush here. I mean, that's kind of what we're getting into uh, gradually, Stone Dancer. Uh, that is essentially the fun part. Um, but if you would like to specifically put your finger on a certain part that you want us to hone in on, that would be welcome too. So let's talk about that prologue. Um, to me... Uh, the thing that really, uh, like I was saying before, I was wrestling with it because I was just looking at the symbolism of who was a moon and who was a sun. Uh, and it, when I started keying in on the idea of Waymar forcing his way into the forest and using will as a guide sort of against his will, that's when I started to really be, realize like this is this is the story of Azor High breaking into the woods, essentially, and using Nissa Nissa as a guide against her will, um, killing her, making her climb the tree and grab the fire of the gods for him uh, so that he can then go do his thing. Uh, and that's really amazing. Like, I, I don't know. I just really found that to have a lot of resonance. And what do you guys think about that? For me, it speaks of um, the crone looking in through the door of death and then letting the ravens out type of situation and it would be both of them combined together yeah exactly because uh you know wilsa she climbs the tree and prays to the gods and then here come the others which are also kind of like the comet so this is absolutely opening the door of death and letting all kinds of bad things into the world and then by virtue of that uh we also get waymar coming to life which might be like the knight's king coming to power so all of these things have been let in by, you know, essentially Nissa Nissa opening the door of death. And she and, and that in that sense, we should think about her as the weirwoods protecting themselves. Essentially, she, you know, Will climbs the tree and gets the sap on his face and hand. So he's like merged with the tree. He is the tree now. And then the tree sends out the others to attack the one who invaded them, which is Waymar. So, I mean, that's that's basically the story right there. Pretty exciting. So, absolutely. Uh, what I like to do is I look, I see things through the lens of the Grey King just because that's how I think. Um, absolutely. But um, when you say that, uh, you know, Azor High is um, manipulating those trees or, or he's invading those trees if if we look at the actual tale of the great king um that's that's what he's doing in his myth he's manipulating the trees he's making tools out of them he's making ships out of them um he's not you know like i said trees are a part of nature they're natural um you know they are nature shouldn't be inherently evil it should just be you know balanced and fine 
so with Azora High manipulating those trees and what you were saying with him invading the, the trees, and I think he was even hacking at them, um, it, it's very in tune with what the Great King is said to have done in his myth, because if you really take a good look, it, it sounds like it, it wasn't um, a very good relationship that he had with trees, so... Well, no, you make a great point. So he cut down Ig and made a boat out of it. Um, so what essentially he killed the weirwood and then made it into a vessel he could use to sail. That is essentially the idea that carving the face on the weirwood tree is essentially killing it and turning it into a zombie, a white, an empty skin that the green seer can then inhabit and use as his ship to sail up in the stars. So that's almost like, if you think about it, it's more confirmation of the idea that, yes, the weirwoods don't want to be invaded. Creating the weirwood net as we know it is an alteration and a defilement of whatever the trees were doing before. So we're, set, we're essentially like a parasite, we the green seers, setting up shop inside the mind of the weirwood net. And in doing that, we're killing the weirwood net and turning them into whites, turning them into a dead tree that's now a boat. So that's that's great, Amanda. That just sort of clicked in as you said that. Um, that's and the, so the Gray King. Yes, you're exactly right. Um, that is what Waymar is doing. He's invading the trees. He kills Nissa Nissa, and then what does he do? He obtains the broken, uh, the lightning struck tree, which is his broken sword. Like that's the symbol of the Gray King's fire of the gods. Is this mm-hmm. lightning blasted tree? That's what Will makes. Or Waymar. That's what Waymar makes with his sin, essentially. So, yeah. And and he's got gray eyes, too, of course. So he's definitely the gray king figure here. And that also just sort of confirms, um, you know, Amanda and I's initial take on the gray king, which is that he represents the evil green seer, uh, the guy that he's he is a green seer, kind of like right from the beginning. I was calling him some sort of green seer or a green seer in some sense, because I didn't see him as like blood raven exactly like he is he he's the one that he broke things he invaded the mm-hmm. weird net he wasn't a green seer by birth like he did this through magic yeah um, yeah i tend to see things on like two sides um because he's called the gray king he he might not be you know an evil character but he's definitely against the green seers or against um you know what they are actually standing for so when i see uh two sides being played out during the long night. I see them as a a gray side and a green side, Um, a a tree loving side and a tree hating side. And um, Azura High was most likely, the gray king was most likely on that tree hating side. Um, And so you can see that kind of with um, some of the Tolkien um, references, because Tolkien did a lot with trees in his writing and, um, you could kind of tell how he felt about that character um, or that race of people by how they viewed trees. And so, um, you know, like the orcs were, you know, tree hating, you know, um, it, it's just very, um, very thematic. And so he'll have, you know, characters like Sauron Salt Tongue and Sauron Salt Tongue was a very famous um, ironborn priest. And of course, Sauron, you know, was a tree hating person too. So it just kind of, comes out thematically when you see some of those references with orcs and everything with the iron islands so yeah that makes a ton of sense and that's essentially what gray king is all about he's using the power of weirwoods clearly because 
you know, we're given the impression that he sits in a weirwood throne with a weirwood crown and he possesses the living fire of Naga, the sea dragon. So he's possessing that weirwood fire. He's possessing the fire of the gods through this tree that got struck by lightning. But in doing so, he's killing the trees. So he's killing them in order to use their power. That's that's the theme with all of his myths. He kills the sea dragon, takes the sea dragon's power. He kills the weirwoods, makes a powerful boat. Um, so this is... That's the idea. It's it's a pretty consistent theme. And and that's the the idea, Amanda, that you're talking about the gray to green cycle. It's possible mm-hmm. that Grey King did have a green origin and that I he agree. once was mm-hmm. one who was somewhat copacetic. So it's it's I guess when I say he wasn't a green seer by blood, I, I could be wrong. It, it could be that he does mm-hmm. he does have it does have um a blood connection. You know, maybe he's you have a scenario where Zora High Senior marries a child of the forest and it's the son who's the, you know, both that then is the moonbreaker. Or it could be that the great empire of the dawn has always been uh, having green seer blood. That's something that a lot of the myth heads have been uh, speculating about recently anyway. So, all right. Painkiller, do you have anything you want to get in? We were monologuing there for a minute. Uh, no, no. <laughs> we were monologuing earlier, so... <laughs> This is all Amanda's jam. She she loves the Great King. I love her Ironborn videos. If you guys haven't seen those, please go. They are required reading. Thank you. Yep. And uh, so let's talk about the shade trees and the undying, in fact, because, um, you know, Amanda and I go back and forth about what the <laughs> literal truth of the undying, uh, what those shade trees are. Mm-hmm. Like, are they literally weirwoods? Are they... A, a related species or whatever, but symbolically, I think we all agree on the basic message that's happening, which is that the undying are described as cold blue shadows and they're gathered around this cold blue heart and they're trying to trap Danny and like kill her and take her power. So they are essentially the same as the gray King. They're trying to take the fire power for themselves, but they're also like cold tree killers. They're, they're like, um, and they are themselves like dead trees. When they burn, they're like parchment, and they lift their hands on high like torches. They do the basically the the king of winter symbolism that all the burning whites do, where they're like a burning wicker man um, when they die. But yes, and they're also described as enthroned as well when Danny goes in, and you know she's talking about people being enthroned when. Um... She, she's there and you, you do get a lot of, you know, green seer heavy symbolism going into that scene. And so, um, yeah, we do go back and forth. Um, I think that Danny is a very unreliable narrator um, when it comes to the house of the undying. And so um, with it being um, surrounded by a grove of shade trees, I, I think that it's possible that the undying could be analog, you know, could very well be, more literal analogs to um, green seers um, over there in Essos. But, um, but any way you look at it symbolically, it, it kind of shows through however you want to look at it. So. And, and right. That's, that's, I guess I cut off in the middle of my thought flow, but what I was trying to get to was the, the shade of the evening trees represent corrupted trees i mean that much is obvious they're black inky black with the blue and their their psychedelic drink is all fucking strange and shit so they could be i originally was thinking about them as like a corrupt version of the weirwoods but now i think that they might just be showing us the truth of the weirwoods in a different way essentially like 
the weirwoods themselves are corrupted and poisoned trees. And the, the shade tree being inverted in color, it's kind of just like looking at the weirwoods under the sea, if you will, where everything is opposite and inverted. So it could be that we're just meant to see it as an analog. At the very least, I think it's an analog to the icy part of the weirwood net. Um, I guess that's the other way to see it. It's like the weirwoods and blood raven would be the fire part of the weirwood net. Uh, and the, uh, the, the shade trees and the undying represent the, the part that the others are freezing over and corrupting. And that's where their power comes from. So that could be because I, I am digging the partition idea. The more we talk about it, the more evidence I'm seeing for that idea of the weirwood net being partitioned. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I've said in previous live streams, I, I think that it could be that they were once all either, you know, weirwoods or maybe they were all shade of the evening. I think it's more likely that they are sh they were all once weirwoods and they became shade of the evening, kind of like how you have the theory that there was this corruption with the black oily stone. I think that there's a corruption with the shade of the, the evening trees. And George does something, and I've talked about this in live streams before with the word poison. And um, the blackwood is kind of a, t the blackwood's tree specifically is kind of a tool to inform the reader about what's going on with those blackwood trees yeah. that are over there in Ezos. And what happened right. to the blackwood tree? It was poisoned. Right. And it's a dying weirwood, which kind of shows you like exactly. the, the, the weirwoods and the shade trees might essentially be analogous to each other. They're, they're really just showing us the same truth. Exactly. Right. So because a poisoned um, weirwood is the blackwood. Right. That's that's what always yeah. stuck me about it is like, well, why is the house blackwood associated with weirwood trees? And it's like, oh, well, it's a poisoned weirwood tree. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think that that's why the, you know, the dreams, there's so many similarities, but it's just seems like it's a little bit different when Danny tastes the stuff. She says it tastes disgusting, like ink and spoiled meat and foul. And when Fran tasted it, it, his tasting, it tastes um, almost like the opposite of being too spoiled. It's bitter. You know, when fr fruits aren't ripe enough yet, they're, they're bitter and so we have spoiled and we have like the opposite of, of spoiled. So um, I, I think that it's just kind of showing us what happened. So possibly we do have a an partition going on within the net. Yeah. And that's one thing that Colin uh, was getting to in his reverse reading of the brand chapter is he found some partition evidence too. That's pretty exciting. Um, so right on. So let's, let's pause this very metaphysical uh, uh, discussion that we're having. Uh, Nye Nichols is bringing up something that's pretty cool. This is from Fire and Blood, uh, and it's pretty fun to talk about. It not necessarily ties into what we're talking about, but it's fun. So in Fire and Blood, uh, and this is probably something I, I think I meant to mention on the live stream, but didn't last week. So it says, this is there's a little bit of an ancient prophecy that we hear about, and it's it's pretty exciting. We don't get that many ancient prophecies. So and this one has to do with the dragon. So check this out. It says, uh, and this is basically, okay, I'll go back a second. Um, Sir Ulf's ambitions must be accounted modest when compared to those of his fellow turncloak, Hugh Hammer. The son of a common blacksmith, Hammer was a huge man with hands so strong that he was said to be able to twist steel bars into torques. Though largely untrained in the art of war, his size and strength made him a fearsome foe. His weapon of choice was the war hammer with which he delivered crushing, killing blows. In battle, he rode Vermithor, once the mount of the old king himself, 
of all the dragons in Westeros, only Vagar was older and larger. For all these reasons, Lord Hammer, as he now styled himself, began to dream of crowns. Why be a lord when you can be a king, he told the men who began to gather round him. And talk was heard in the camp of a prophecy of ancient days that said, When the hammer shall fall upon the dragon, a new king shall arise, and none shall stand before him. Whence came these words remains a mystery, not from Hammer himself, who could neither read nor write, but within a few days every man at Tumbleton had heard them. So it's there's a lot of shade thrown on this prophecy, um, but whether or not it's a real prophecy or not, it's really interesting because obviously this makes us think of Robert slaying Rhaegar the dragon with his hammer. So let's entertain the idea that this is a real prophecy. Um, what do you guys think? Is, is that It's kind of interesting, like... The fall of House Targaryen might have been foreshadowed. Uh, if I remember correctly, it wasn't um, wasn't he also the one that um, Damon recommended to become the Lord of Storm or Storm's End as well? Oh yes, yeah, uh... yeah. So I was thinking, I was like, when when she had not done that and said, "Oh, why should we overthrow these great lords?" Um, the reasoning not to give him storm's end they were like why are we uh, why are we overthrowing um all the other lords are going to be up and up um upended and we're going to give all these uh, bastards uh their own their own thing and i was like but house baratheon is literally overthrowed a old house took the girl and married her and and then became the lord of storm's end and he was a bastard i was like oh my god that is so stupid <laughs> yeah the the baratheon thing is like a perfect echo it's like you have oris baratheon uh, a half dragon bastard who takes over the baratheon house and then you have essentially um uh, uh robert doing the same thing you know uh so it's it's pretty cool it's a good echo um, and, of course, Robert has a little bit of Targaryen blood, just like Oris did. Uh, and there's a few others, two other uh, Baratheons that marry into the Targaryen line, too. Uh, so it's one of those things that's echoed several times. Uh, but, of course, when Robert rises, um, no man can stand against him for a while, but eventually he get, does get cast down. So let's think about this prophecy in an archetypal fashion. Who is... Who is the hammer that strikes down the dragon that none can stand against? What is this talking about in War for the Dawn terms, do you think? So I, I think you probably know who I think did the hammer. Um, when I, I have a video on the, Garth and the Great King, and I personally think that um, the Hammer of the Waters has to do with um, the tale of the storm god lashing down with the thunderbolt. And um, right when we look at what the storm god might actually represent it might be more in line with um the children of the forest the green seers um and so i think that this um hammer uh the storm wielding is more like a, a storm god type of a, a thing so i think it's more in line with the the character that we know as garth greenhand uh which is cool because you know oh you know became the storm king, you know they it, recommended him for the storm king and um so you see a couple connections there as well but yeah i think it's garth Greenhand personally so let's think about this when the hammer falls and slays the dragon this sounds to me like like you said the thunderbolt hitting the tree which is also the moon meteor striking and causing a long night this also mm -hmm. triggered a death transformation for azora high 
So mm-hmm. Azor Ahai is the dragon that's slayed. And somehow out of this mess comes the others who are then like lightning. And it could be that they are the ones that nobody could stand against because Robert does have other symbolism, especially as he gets old. He's got those blue eyes um, and all of his children have the same blue eyes. There's a, he he kind of turns into an evil king after after a while. So um, I don't want to go too far into that, but I think that the 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 people that no one could stand against would be the others, um, and they come after Azor High is killed. Essentially, I I have a similar thought, but it's more in line with uh, Christopher the Fourth Mud. Okay. Uh, it, the oh, king yeah. of rivers and hills, the hammer of justice. Yeah, and great. I'm like, yeah, I know, right? He has like a ton of crazy symbolism. But I think like him, somebody who is echoing him specifically is is probably the one that's going to take down um, the the whoever the dragon is. So uh, elaborate on that, painkiller. <laughs> Honestly, this this is just like one of those thoughts that just kind of crossed my mind. So, <coughs> he's, talk it out. Yeah. <laughs> so right. So Christopher Mudd, you know, he's the Hammer of Justice, and he's the one. He was the one that was riding around, right, doing um, like fighting all these wars, the all, all these wars in the Riverlands. Hundredth battle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's also got the tomb at Old Stones with the flowers grown over it, and the face is erased, and mm-hmm, he's the eighth. Mm-hmm. eighth king i think eighth mud king or something the eighth mud king but he's the fourth tristopher or whatever um so i I mean honestly i think that's that's the archetype that we're looking for especially with uh, garth the green hand that you were talking about and um whoever did the hammer the waters type of situation or whatever that kind of thing so I don't know. Okay, so <laughs> we'll think that about, out there. <laughs> so think about Greenbeard, um, the uh, in Barracks Band. He talks about he can't see fire visions. When he looks into the fire, the fire singes his beard. Um, and he's also got the green to gray symbolism because the tavern keep you know needles him about go oh, Greenbeard. Is it looks like Greybeard to me? Because like his dye is coming out and he's got gray in his beard. So that's sort of giving you the gray king idea. He was a green man. But then he messed with the fire of the gods, called down the hammer. Then that made him die and transform into a gray king, a hostile invader of the weirwood net. Uh, You know, so. Yeah. So what's cool about the tale of Christopher IV um, is we're also seeing uh, those two archetypes, that storm king archetype, that storm god archetype with the hammer wielding. And with Eric the Kinslayer, uh, we are seeing this kinslaying, tree-hating archetype going on. Now, in the, it's very cool because we see a connection between Jenny Volstones and the gold, Ghost of High Heart. We're seeing connections between those two areas, but we don't know really why they connect or how they connect. Um, and, but when we are introduced to Old Stones, we are told the story of Christopher the Fourth. When we are introduced to High Heart, we are told the story of Eric the Kinslayer. Now, Christopher IV, he fought 99 battles and lost his 100th. In the world book, we learn about Christopher IV. Okay, it says the same thing. He uh, fought 99 battles and lost his 100th. Okay, once we learn about Christopher IV, the next paragraph, in that same era, 
Eric the Kinslayer, blah, blah, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we learned that they were contemporaries is what we learned. And we learned about the Battle of High Heart, where 31 werewoods were chopped down and uh, the children of the forest and the first men were slaughtered. Um, And we have this Eric the Kinslayer. So we have this kinslaying, tree-hating, tree-chopping down archetype fighting, most likely, Christopher the Fourth in his hundredth battle, so um, it's it's very cool because we're getting this hammer wielding archetype, and we're also getting this kinslaying, tree hating archetype um, right there. So it's really cool. Cool. Well, I'll just mute my microphone and turn my screen off, and Amanda, you can uh, take over. I'm, Amanda, I'm, I agree. I agree. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't apologize. That's I'm giving you a compliment. That's fantastic. This sounds like a. This sounds like a new video being uh, sort of pieced together here uh, that we can look for on the Disputed Lands channel sometime soon. That's really great. I love that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thanks. Make sure. Yeah. So when you make the video, Amanda, make sure that first you uh, do the layer that the plebs will like, which is Eric the Kinslayer is the guy that killed Christopher Mudd. Then do the symbolism layer for the myth heads so that okay. the plebs can at least watch the first part and then like turn off, you know, and still like okay. your Okay. <laughs> and that makes and that makes a lot of sense. You know why? Because Prince Baylor Targaryen is the hammer in the hammer and the anvil. Yes. And then Makar is the anvil mm-hmm. and then he does He's kinsley. killing his brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And his brother's name is Baylor. So it, it's it it goes back to that video. <laughs> cool this has been fun i'm uh, i'm glad the two of you were able to come on the uh, stream today this is for two yeah, of us. very fun, fun. Yeah. well it's always fun when you can start to see um all these different paths leading us to the same idea the same story so that's when you know that you're you're on the right trail you know i i always i sometimes get in trouble for insisting there is a right trail to begin with but the way I start to feel good about it is when we find all these paths that seem to be leading to the same little clearing in the woods, if you will. Yeah. Sometimes different roads lead to the same castle. So indeed I feel grateful. Dead lyrics emerging in the chat. We've, we've been having some good one. George is a huge dead fan. uh, And Mm -hmm. the grateful dead, uh, Robert Hunter who writes the lyrics for the dead is very well versed in mythology, uses a lot of mythological concepts in their lyrics and they love you know, inverting things and starting back and comparing past and future. I mean, that's the kind of trippy shit that the dead love. So there's a lot of that. Um, I've even, so I've got guys, I have, my best friend is a huge deadhead and was lived on tour for many years uh, before Jerry died, or at least a few years. Um, and he is somewhat familiar with this. He's read the series twice, I think. Um, and so I was thinking about doing it between two weirwoods and having him on just to talk about, Grateful Dead stuff. I know there's a few people in the fandom that are really tuned into it too. So there's a lot there for sure. I think it would be awesome because I'm I'm not really familiar with um, with the Grateful Dead, so I think it would be illuminating for me. Yeah, well, the the Dark Star is the big one. If you read the lyrics to Dark Star, it's got like Blue Winter Roses and Dark Star crashing, and like I mean, it's it sounds like the whole Long Night story in in a song form. Uh, so. If there is a song of ice and fire, it might be Dark Star by the Grateful Dead. Um, anybody wants to pull up the lyrics to that can check that out. So Gregory Namuth sends in a super chat and says, what about the Six Skins prologue backwards? Uh, would he be coming back from uh, the Nissa Nissa type 
going out. Of, okay, yeah, so let's think about that. That one seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Vermeer, if you flip it around backwards, Vermeer starts in the one-eyed wolf and inside the weirwood tree, inside Thistle, and then sort of comes out uh, and becomes Vermeer the warg, who's got the weirwood crutch, who then he goes down into the tent covered in snow and lays down and goes to sleep in the ice. So that's kind of like Waymar laying down in the snow and going into the ice, the dragon locked in ice, all that stuff. Yeah. And also, I'm again, we're going to get to Colin's essay in a minute. When you reverse the brand prologue, he's also coming out of the heart of winter into Westeros. Um, so it's it's pretty cool. And that reminds me of, okay, so at the end of the We Should Start Back prologue, the reverse reading, we get to the point where Waymar confronts the others, right? And his sword reassembles, and the others stab him, but they don't kill him, and they're impressed, and they, they salute each other with the swords, and then the others go back into the trees. And I suggested that this could be either the last hero like reconciling with the others and sending their spirits back into the trees so they can be at peace, or it could be like the Night King sending the others out to invade. So there's a few of these reverse reading chapters that end up giving that idea of a Night King arising in the heart of winter and then invading and sending things out into Westeros. So it's a pretty cool idea. And that that strikes me as what the Vermeer prologue might show us if we flip it around. So that would, since that has so many parallels to the uh, Waymar prologue, it would be an obvious candidate for that. What do you guys think? Nice. I agree. Um, I don't have a whole lot more to add. I need to really look at all of those prologues, but I think that the Baromir Sixkin one is probably one of the more interesting ones to try and look at. So um, I think that that makes sense. So what do you think, Painkiller Jane? Um, For me, it makes sense. Um, I would just, what, what kind of, kind of trips me up a little bit is reading um, how he was stabbed and then the the squirrel skin cloak was taken from him. And then if that's put backwards, his his skin is taken and then he's stabbed <laughs> type of situation. Would that be the way or no? Well, so the squirrel skin cloak is kind of an echo of what happens later with Thistle and that he tries to take the skin of a dead woman. And in doing so, he has to die. So that's like him dying to go into Thistle and then go into the Weirwood Net, which is the skin of Nissa Nissa. So coming out of it, he's like essentially coming, again, take coming out of the Weirwood Net, coming out of the skin cloak uh, and coming back to life instead of being stabbed. That's the way I would look at it. Okay. Um, but it's always interpretational whether you like, like I said, just reverse the order of the events or literally play it in reverse so that somebody falling Mm -hmm. is now somebody rising. Um, You just have to sort of try to figure it out. Well, and there's also um, some symbolism for the cloak. And I know that you talked about how the cloak represents, um, you know, more like the cloak of of darkness. Um, And that's, that's probably a pretty good thing to, you know, branded say our blood Raven did say darkness will be your cloak. Um, but in the same chapter in that prologue, um, and, and I like the, the concept of proximity. In that same chapter, uh, it is described as his crowning glory. And so um, 
you see a lot with these Baylor type characters or these like hammer wielding type characters. Um, there is, what is it? Thorin Smallwood. He had, um, no, is it? He wore Riker? Jeremy, he, he wore Jeremy Riker's uh-huh. cloak. Okay, so Jeremy Riker, his sigil or ha- his sigil is hammers. Okay, so when he died, and he had a sable cloak. So when he died, um, another character uh, purloined his cloak and, and put it on. And so you have this hammer wielding guy with this, wearing the sable cloak dying, and another person taking it and putting it on. Um, in the the prologue, we have a guy with a sable cloak, and he um, now when he's looking at that. Um, sword to take back. He's also looking at that cloak, and he, you know, he's he's thinking about that cloak, and it sounds and it looks like he's probably possibly thinking about taking that too. But he sees that it's all a mess and it's you know worthless. Um, now, when Baylor and we got another Baylor name, and we talked about how the, those Baylor names can uh, correlate to that hammer wielding guy. So we have Baylor black tide. He had a sable cloak. Euron killed him. He's our kinslaying guy. He takes his cloak. He wears it in the story of Huzor Amai, the, the guy who wore the pelt of the King of the hairy men. It's very heavy. Jacob and Esau, um, wordage here because, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, that is what Jacob did to um, take his brother's birthright from him. He, uh, his brother was very hairy and his father was very blind. And his father said, um, son, do this. And when you come back, I'm going to bless you with your birthright. And so Jacob, he put on, his brother was very hairy. So he put on something that was very hairy. And he went up to his father and he got his brother's birthright. So with Huzor and I wearing the pelts or the cloak of the king of the hairy men, it's taking his brother's birthright. So I think that that sable cloak could very well be more of a symbol of his birthright than and be, being taken. Then, um, then that, and you're going to see it kind of thematic um, as well. So, uh, you know, with well, cloaks and stuff. So, well, so that fits in with the idea of uh, Nissa Nissa and Amethyst Empress being a usurped character. So that's the whole point. It's like uh, the Bloodstone Emperor usurps the Amethyst Empress. The Amethyst Empress is like the moon. So the point is that the sun kills the moon. The moon's exploding smoke and debris cloaks the sun in darkness so that's how the solar king in the sky puts on the moon's cloak but on so essentially there is you there's the moon is being usurped in that sense and so because for example the moon is like the lord of night because it's the light that rules at night but the bloodstone emperor now becomes the lion of night so in that sense exactly. he's, that's the, yeah, that's how it works celestially but so that is a usurpation when you take the cloak it's very much a usurpation. Um, and Waymar's cloak is made from um, uh, martens, right? That's or from sables, which is like yes. a weasel. It's like an animal of the of the forest. So essentially, like he's he's stealing the cloak from the forest. Um, that's what's happening. So, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. And yeah, I love how the, the Jeremy Riker fits in. That's cool that he's a hammer guy, just like. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who was the uh, who was the other hammer guy that got his cloak taken? Were you comparing that to? Well, um, we have Baylor Black Tide, and he has the bells on his sigil. He's got um, 
Um, and his collars are green and black, so he's got the green in his sigil. He's got a name of Baylor. So we've got that um, connection to um, the dying and resurrecting horn god, um, who's also a storm god, whose name is Baal or Baal. Right. And um, also you have um, a connection to Abel, because Baal, as George has pointed out, is a anagram of Abel. And Abel is the brother that was killed. So. so look at it this way. The the hammer of the waters falls from the moon, according to my theory. And so you have Nissa Nissa figures who get their cloak taken. And when that happens, the hammer falls. So essentially, when when um, Thorne Smallwood takes that sable cloak from Jeremy Riker, he's taking the hammer. He's like wielding the hammer now. And that is part of those meteors. So Thorne Smallwood. He is a notorious tree hater. He loves Craster and he speaks up for Craster. And he's like, so it's funny, um, all throughout the ranging, there's this little running dichotomy between Thor and Smallwood and um, uh, D- Dywin, who has wooden teeth. Okay, so Dywin has wooden teeth. He's a friend to the woods. He hates Craster. He's in tune with the woods. He's the one that's like picking up that the haunted forest isn't right. He's like, dude, I've never heard no deader wood than this. Something's wrong. So he's like afraid of the others, tuned into the wood. He's part wood. Then you have Thorin's small wood, who's like, he's got small love for the woods, or he wants to make the trees smaller and chop them down or whatever. Like, that's everything he talks about. He's like, oh, Craster's a friend to the watch. And and then he's like, and he says, I hate those trees. When they see the weirwood at white tree, he's like, no wonder the first men cut them down. I wouldn't mind taking an ax to that thing myself, he says. So it's this whole running thing. So the idea that he's the one that takes the sable cloak and takes the hammer, uh, that makes perfect sense. He's a Knight's King figure, essentially. He's, he's a tree hater. You like that, Amanda? I see you nodding your head vigorously. I love that. I love that. I've, I was coughing earlier, so I've got myself muted. Uh, but I, I love that. I got yeah. really excited when you were saying that. Yeah, Diamond can smell the cold. He can smell the others coming. Uh, just like cold hands can sense the others coming and they ask him if the, he can smell them. Uh, so it's, it's, he's like, yeah, you, you get the idea. Pretty fun stuff. Pretty fun stuff. And it fits in with what you were saying about um, in Tolkien, you know, people who hate the trees are bad guys. Um, it's pretty much shows you like who's good and who's bad. So very cool. Uh, let me flip over to my questions here. And I got a couple of good ones. Um, so Stina Fleming, uh, who, AKA Bulwer, the purple avatar of heavenly house tourists, newly minted. Thank you, Stina, um, says, do you, uh, did you have a chance to read the snow queen and see if there's anything good in there other than the mirror shard in the eye and the icy heart as gifts from the snow queen? I think that 1984 tale, 1844 tale could have been a source of inspiration for George uh, maybe through C.S. Lewis, because Jadis of Narnia is definitely a cousin of the Snow Queen. Um, so I have not read this. Ladies, do either one of you, are either one of you familiar with this story? So I'm familiar with it because it somebody actually um, pointed the, the 
story out to me um, not too long ago um, on YouTube. They just kind of like, hey, check this out. There's here's a link. And I read it and it, it it's very Night's Queen heavy. Um, and so I don't um, I can't think of like some parallels to, to throw out there right away, except for what you pointed out, PKJ, with um, Waymar getting that shard right in his eye. I think that, that that's um, possibly a, a clue that he has read that story. Uh, but it's a cool, I love fairy tales. So um, I read it, I enjoyed it. Um, and so it's, I think it's quite possible George might be playing on some of those concepts. Yeah, um, it's it's a lot, um, especially with the Jadis, um, to go back to the justice theme, we have the one, um, the one brother who is like uh, the betrayer, but then comes back as the the justice one, the one who's like the lawful and the and the one with all the the justice. I believe that's probably where we're going with a lot of uh, a lot of certain situations, especially with Night Queen and um, if we have all these hammer dudes on that side type of situation. Um, but. Honestly, with the Snow Queen, it's been ages. It's been years since I've actually read the story, and I haven't watched the anime that was made in um, Japan a, very, a couple of years ago, a, a, like word for word on on the story itself. Um, I remember it was a brother and sister situation, right? So it's it's hard for me to remember exactly because I haven't read it in a long time. I'm glad you guys have some familiarity to it because I remember somebody mentioning it uh, two weeks ago during the during the live stream, but I didn't have a chance to follow up on it. But yeah, sometimes the inspiration is simply like the impression, like you read a story about a mirror shard in somebody's eye and it really just sticks with you to uh, no pun intended. You know, it just sort of sticks in your brain and you you just you want to use it. And so even if the circumstance comes out different, you know, that's. It's just like one of those myth themes or a motif that just makes an impression and, you know, and, and just uh, sticks with them. So the, I know that BT is going to write some stuff. Blue Tiger is going to write some stuff about the Narnia parallels to A Song of Ice and Fire. And Jadis is one of the topics he's going to be looking at. So you guys, uh, Amber Compendium, Tolkienic Song of Ice and Fire, you know where that's at. And stay tuned. Uh, for Blue Tiger's writing about that. I'm looking forward to it. I'd almost like to go back and read it. I love the Narnia books, especially um, the one that tells about the history of Jadis. And and I can't remember if that's the first book or the sixth book. Um, and they've got that whole, like, wood between the worlds with all those pools, you know, that act as portals. Uh, so there's a lot of cool ideas in Narnia that are tying into some universal myth themes and that are definitely... Uh, at play in a song of ice and fire. So a uh, couple of good comments in the chat here. That I want to go back for. <laughs> so check this out. Uh, somebody said, uh, first of all, bells contain hammers. You were talking about the bells of Baylor and mm -hmm. there that's the, the dingers inside the bell is actually a hammer. That is true. <laughs> so you, you were like true. almost, almost there. And so somebody mm -hmm. gave you a, thank who, you. Who said that? Um, Questing Beast, Questy, my anger translator. Nice, anger ranger. Uh, and then uh, Ned Braden says, Thorn Smallwood would like to ax the Weirwood Tree a question. I'd like to ax you a few questions. <laughs> yeah, totally. Very nice. 
Uh, all right. So, oh, that's Magician's Nephew. Yeah, that was that was probably my favorite. That one was awesome. Okay, so back to my questions on here. Andrew Stephen says, "Could Knight's King have been a warg? Glimpsed Knight's Queen from atop the wall through the eyes of an eagle, chased her and caught her with a shadow cat. Uh, all extensions of himself, much like Vermeer. Well, yes, I do believe Knight's King was." a uh, corrupted green seer or something along those lines. I mean, he may be the end result of Azor High going through this whole green to gray transformation is that the gray king essentially is Azor High as the Knight's King. That's very possible. And whatever that case, I do think that the creator of the others uh, was a green seer and that it involved the Weirwoods. So Vermeer is definitely a Knight's King parallel. Absolutely. Uh, and that's interesting. The idea that, you know, when they glimpsed him from atop the wall, glimpsed her from atop the wall, chased her and caught her. Yeah. Maybe he used animals to do that. Kind of like Vermeer uses his shadow cat to bring women to his lair. That's, it kind of makes sense. What do y'all think? Absolutely agree. I mean, he's always talking about the, the, he's casting the eye on women that he wanted and none of them gave, had, children with the gift or whatever and um i believe there's like certain oath breakers that um that have the flew down from the tower like word for word situation i know that um mans has it and so do the three guys that were with osha have the same line with him with that situation nice. and even the idea of casting an eye upon somebody is the idea of an eye becoming like a, a projectile, you know? That's pretty cool. And also it makes you think of uh, Baylor from uh, Welsh Myth, who Baylor of the evil eye, because when he's killed, his head, like, falls down, and the burning eye, like, burns a hole in the ground. So that's casting your eye, if you will. Uh, thanks, Jojo Lady Dane, for linking Blue Tiger's page uh, in the chat. Uh, make sure to add that to the description, too. And every time I ever see something with one eye, all I ever think about is um, uh, Samuel L. Jackson saying, I got my good eye on you (laughs) from Winter Soldier. Nice. (laughs) All right. So let's see here. Um, Alana. So, okay, this fits right in. Alana Prestane of Bravos, keeper of the notorious glorious cloister. That's your new nickname, by the way, Alana. I just gave that to you. Um, So, she says, I read something recently about weirwood arrows and their potential to kill dragons. Um, and the rumor from that comes from um, Torin Stark, the king who knelt. His brast- bastard brother, Brandon Snow, wanted a, he had a plan. Uh, instead of kneeling to the Targaryens, he wanted to sneak across the river and kill the dragons with weirwood arrows because he thought that killing a dragon with a weirwood arrow was was a thing that could happen. So that's where that rumor comes from. And Elena asks, I'd like to hear a discussion about that, especially since it's going to be an important part of the endgame, potentially killing dragons. Would it, uh, would it kill a dragon? Would it be reversed from being a white if it was a white dragon? Could, would it infuse the dragon with the knowledge of the weirwood net? What would happen? So thoughts, guys, what do you think? We're just talking about shooting things through the eye. So will we see... A weirwood arrow used to kill a dragon, or could it be used to put a white dragon out of its misery? Or what do you think? Well, we've already seen a weirwood arrow kill a dragon when uh, the red grass field with Damon Blackfire. Um, 
Ah. And so there's, I mean, there's some symbolism for that. There is. Um, but um, we don't really know what the properties are going to be with Weirwood um, against a dragon yet. So it could be symbolic, um, which which is, would be cool too. Um, but um, I, I'm kind of interesting, just interested to see what could you know possibly happen. Um, it, I don't know where he would have gotten that knowledge from. Um, we don't really hear about this knowledge. Is this a, a lost knowledge? Um, is this, if it's true, did he receive a vision? Um, what you know catalyzed him to to make the make his arrows out of weirwood? If that is the case, that they are effective against dragons. Um, so I'm a little bit interested in that respect. If arrows weirwood is a good um, weapon against dragons, I'd, I'd like to know where he got that information. Yeah, it sounds like an old northern myth, yeah. which begs the question, mm-hmm. why do northerners have ancient myths about how to kill dragons? Mm, I wonder. Mm-hmm. It's because they were there before, but go ahead, Pinky. <laughs> uh, for me, okay, so whenever I think about that, um, Brandon uh, uh, Brandon Snow, uh, for me, when I think of Weirwood Arrows, and you've, you've seen, you have done lots of like... Um, um, information about it being ash trees, the uh, the weirwoods being ash trees. I always think of ash bows, and then I go to thinking about Boash, the the blind god from Lorath. And for me, oh, a blind hold guy. On, hold on, hold on. I'm sorry. Hold on. You just popped the brain cell. Give me, <laughs> give me a second. Okay. So instead of ash bows, you're talking about Boash. Yes, uh, yes, okay. the That's blind cool. god. And right. for me, right. that's a, a guy, a blind god that's named Bo, that's Ash Bo, technically. Um, it brings up the Hodor myth and Balder myth, where uh, Balder, the blind god, is tricked by Loki to killing his brother, uh, the god of light. And that, for me, is kind of kind of the situation here. When I think about Brandon, I th- I think he's um, echoing um, the, the mistletoe uh, arrows. Yes, like yes, that. exactly. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that, that, that I'm thinking that that's like part of the original um, situation that he how he killed the dragon um, in to make more dragons type of situation. You get what I'm saying? I like that. What do you mean to make more dragons? Um, it, it, to he was Azora High. That's what I think. Okay, so, I'm sorry. Who was Azora High? All right, all right. So I, I'm thinking that Brandon with the ash bow and ash arrows or whatever is the one killing the uh, the god's eye. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. All right, which would be akin to shooting the dragon in the eye because mm-hmm. the Ur- the Urax myth. The dragon's eye represents the god's eye, the sun moon thing. And when Serwin spears it, that's the comet essentially hitting the moon. So, okay, that all makes sense. Now, check this out. Um, the other time we see a dragon killed in the eye with an arrow, it is to Sarion, the blue queen. She's injured and she's essentially dying. And they, it's a mercy kill. It's after the battle and they're putting her out of her misery. And so, Bill Burley, who has a very interesting sigil, uh, kills the dragon with three arrows to the eye. And Bill Burley's sigil is a white knife on a field of blue, nice. which is dawn. It's, it's, it's dawn specifically in the form of the, the frozen white knife river symbol. 
It's white on blue. It's a white knife instead of a sword. So this is Dawn as an ice sword. So, Amanda, both you and I, I've discovered, have a similar belief that Dawn may be made from weirwood in some Mm -hmm. way. Either it was used in the reaction the forging, maybe the pale stone of a petrified weirwood is is the is part of the pale stone mythology of dawn, something like that. Um, I've found scenes where the weirwoods are growing icy teeth, and of course, teeth are what the wolves always describe as uh, swords and spears are always tooths and claws and teeth. Um, not tooths. I'm sorry, it's a tooth <laughs> or teeth. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, so. I think that when trees, weirwoods grow icy teeth, that's essentially like making a white sword of ice from a weirwood somehow. Uh, I don't, I haven't figured out how that works, <laughs> but the symbolism has been suggesting it for a long time. So Amanda, you want to add your thoughts to that? Well, um, and you, first of all, and you've done a lot of stuff with your um, weirwood goddess stuff, you know, and, and maybe when he's, when we're talking about the, the myth of Nissa Nissa, um, maybe we're talking about her when she's embodied by the as a weirwood as well. Um, but yeah, you see a lot of stuff in the books. Um, the the glowing of the weirwood door of the night fort and the glowing of dawn is is actually described in a very very similar very similar yes. manner. Yes. Um, and um, and I have a theory about shade of the evening and, and um, the oily black stone and um, anyway. I, I think that the Valerian steel swords may actually be um, made of that wood uh, because it's described as drinking the light. And there's there's similar wording with black oily stones and, mm-hmm. and the house of the undying. But um, anyway, you, you just see so much just kind of time and time again um, uh, with, with the weirwoods and um, with, um, with dawn there's just a lot of really symbolic wording and i think that it's it's a great possibility and now i I see a lot of the connections as well with the other side and that's kind of how i I had put two two and two together because i noticed it on on the other end on the black sword side right Um, and remember i've been throwing out the idea that dawn might be a dragon killing sword for various mm -hmm. reasons because i keep seeing that idea being suggested and then we see a guy with a white knife sigil shooting a dragon with arrows. They're not said to be weirwood arrows, but we can interpret the symbolism. He's a white sword dude shooting arrows into the dragon's eye. And elsewhere we're told that weirwood arrows are the thing you want to shoot in the eye. But a weirwood arrow is really just a projectile coming from a weirwood tree. And Dawn might be essentially that. It might be a weirwood projectile in a sense. Um, I'm not, again, not sure exactly how, but that's what's being suggested. So <laughs> we'll figure it out. Um, but that's it's pretty cool stuff. Uh, we see it at the Eerie, too. The Eerie has a lot of icy spears growing from the pale stone. Um, it's all over the place. And it really makes me see, like, okay, these are, these are icy swords that come from pale stone. Uh, so it's a great dawn is ice. And, yeah, to what you were saying, the, the Black Gate door grow, uh, glows like milk and moonlight. Um, and dawn is alive with light and pale as milk glass. Um, and then the other thing we see of milk glass are the bones of the others. The weirwoods are bone white. The others have bone white hands. Uh, so like sort of milk, bone, moonlight, weirwoods, dawn, and the others 
they form this merry-go-round of the same words that are used to describe all of them. Uh, so it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, yeah, good stuff. Uh, Dana, uh, Dana Bats. She just, uh, she just, no, she just said something. Ice killed the fireworms in, um, in Aria, um, in Area. Ah, sorry, it did. Yeah. So it killed her. It killed her. It stopped her heart, which is, you know, essentially ah. the same thing. Mm. Um, but it, it and killed just, the it, dragon worms too. Yeah, and then eject. It made them eject out of her body. And it wasn't even a bath. It was a tub full of ice. Ice, yeah. So specifically, it's ice. And if dawn is ice, as I insist it is, um, then this is ice-killing dragons. Nice! Ah! <laughs> I'm going to have you on every week, Painkiller Jane. You're never leaving. <laughs> You're chained to, chained to the desk. <clears throat> like a green seer. So, um, by the way, guys, um, I will stop and just remind you that i uh put out my first patron only episode which was jamie and brienne um sword fighting in the river in the riverlands by maiden pool and it turned into a full um ten thousand word essay which means it's about an hour podcast if it was a podcast and it is only available to patrons uh it is available to patrons of all levels so even a one dollar donation will unlock access to it but um, I am uh, the sales and marketing department of my brain, which is very small, uh, occasionally pipes up and reminds me to uh, promote my program, which I'm supposed to do, apparently. So there you go, guys. If, if you sign up for Patreon, you will be both supporting mythical astronomy and propelling us uh, higher and upward into the future. And you'll also get that nice little extra tasty treat of the Jamie and Brienne episode. And guess what? It has a lot of parallels to the Waymar prologue and ties into a lot of these ideas. So it's very much within the uh, stream of consciousness of what we're talking about. And yes, Amanda, thank you. There was a $5 super chat from Steph is. Uh, thank you, Steph is. And Gregory Namuth also hit me with one and says, shade is made from a weirwood type from the East, right? Well, Gregory, that's, that's sort of what we've all been debating. Like it's, is it, is it related to weirwood? Is it an alt weirwood? Is it a symbol of a weirwood? It's hard to say. Um, it's one of those things. So we're just trying to figure out how literal the symbolism in, is in there. But there's endless parallels, obviously, between the shade trees and the weirwoods, the undying and the green seers. Uh, so, you know, uh, if you if you missed any of the beginning of this live stream, definitely listen back because we talked about a lot of that stuff, uh, at least in passing there. Sean E. speaking up for my Jamie Brienne essay. Thanks. Appreciate that, Sean E. It was a lot it was of fun. very good. It was very good. Oh, cool. All right. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Let's see here. <clears throat> yeah, it could be that the weirwoods are involved in the sword process um, because one of the ways you make steel is by adding um, uh, a, a source of carbon uh, to the steel, as uh, to the iron as you're forging it. And bone ash is one of the most popular ancient sources of carbon. Um, the weirwoods, where uh, burnt trees would be another one, burnt logs, obviously. The weirwoods are white as bone. So you get the idea of maybe burnt weirwood ash was used in the forging of the sword. It could be something as simple as that, or it could be the pale stone idea. There's a couple ways. Um, or you could just imagine like weirwood magic somehow being involved in the forging process in some more magical way. And there's not actually 
weirwood substance in the sword, but the the magic of it somehow that that would also work and fit the symbolism. Uh, but all, also the other part about that is that the Starks love to use wooden swords, which are tree swords. It happens all the time. Um, in fact, here I'm going to pull up the "Dawn is a Dagger of Light" quote because it has a tree sword in it. I love this one. Um, I've been holding this out forever. I've, I've given you the "Dawn uh, Dagger of Light" uh, quote before, but I, I held out on you on the tree sword part. So check this out. As she slept amidst the rolling grasslands, Catelyn dreamt that Bran was whole again, that Arya and Sansa held hands, that Rickon was still a babe at her breast. Rob, crownless, played with a wooden sword. And when, uh, and when all were safe asleep, she found Ned in her bed, smiling. Sweet it was, sweet and gone too soon. Dawn came cruel, a dagger of light. She woke aching and alone and weary. And then she goes on and on. So basically, this is the chapter where she's coming to grips with the fact that her son is king in the north, leading an army, and is in very much of, in danger. And so her dream is for this innocent time before, you know, Rob, crownless, played with a wooden sword. So before he came, became the king of winter, essentially. But then dawn came cruel, a dagger of light. And with this dagger of light comes the realization that Rob is the king of winter. And of course, when we see him uh, enthroned, his sword runs with morning light, which makes us think of dawn. So it just tells you that dawn, the dagger of light, belongs in the hands of the king of winter. However, it might also be, in some sense, a wooden sword. Uh, because it came from a tree. So what do you think about that, Amanda? Oh, Amanda stepped out. What do you think about no, that? Pink? I'm still here. I just took my video off for a second. Um, no, I like that. And I like the idea that um, the, the Starks, they start out with a wooden sword. So um, they start it, basically when they're training, when when they when they start out with their sword fighting, um, it starts out as a wooden sword, and and it, that it progresses to a steel sword once they you know kind of hit that manhood benchmark, or you know however you want to word it. Um, and so I like it how we can kind of see the progression with Rob specifically that that our king of winter um, from a wooden sword to a steel sword. Right. So it's like a progression. Exactly. And someone's pointing out, well, practice swords are wooden swords. Right. But for some reason, it's the Starks that George writes with them all the time. Like it's this whole thing where Joffrey wants to wield live steel and Rob's only allowed to play with the wooden sword. So it's it's a recurring motif. Arya uses a stick sword and a broom sword when she's up in the kingdom of the leaves and training and sword fighting. So there, it's a very consistent and repeated association with wooden swords and Starks. Isn't Arya's isn't Arya's wooden sword with um with uh, her dancing master her um isn't it filled with iron as well? Um, yes, those training swords are. But she also makes one herself later at Harrenhal with a broken broomstick too. But you're right. I guess the symbol, yeah, iron inside the wood, right? It's an iron and wood thing. Yeah, totally. Oak and iron, I guess, is one way to think about it, right? Um, so here's oh, here's the other thing. So next week, um, I haven't completely pinned this down with gray area, but I think that we're going to do this next week. And if it's not next week, it'll be very soon. But we're going to do it between two weirwoods where I'm basically interviewing Gray, having a conversation with Gray Area one-on-one about some of the recent work that she's been doing that happens to intersect with a lot of my work really well. And she's been writing about the memory, sorrow, and thorn 
influences on A Song of Ice and Fire. And that's a series by Tad Williams, a famous fantasy author that George has often cited as one of the reasons and the inspirations for him to get into fantasy specifically instead of sci-fi that he had been writing. Although his sci-fi has always been very fantasy-like. But that being said, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn is a really interesting series. I have not read it, um, but I've heard people talk about it. And the people who've talked about it, uh, it's, a, it's very obvious that this is a big influence. I mean, George acknowledges it as an influence, but when you get into it, you can really see it. And there's this thing about um, the hero needs to forge this magic sword, and he does it by poisoning a tree and turning it to iron and then like forging the sword out of the tree somehow, which is really similar to everything we've been talking about, about poisoning the weirwood net, um, you know, the tree sword, Lightbringer, and the and the burning tree being sort of interchangeable symbols of the fire of the gods. So I just watched this recent video by Gray, and my brain was just like blowing up. And I was like frantically typing, or I wasn't even halfway through it. I was like, dude, we got to talk about this. And yeah, I see Aziz nodding his head. I, I'm aware that you're into it, Aziz. I know you're one of the ones that's read it. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna do a roundtable, like I said, either next week or very soon. Gray and I. And we're going to talk about this, um, these ideas and try to get into how it, what it means, because it, it really interlocks with a lot of this stuff. So it probably, very, very inter- cool. it probably intersects with why the Ironwoods in Dorne are called the Blood Royals, probably. I mean, mm, yeah, being royal probably. blood is being blue blooded. So that's an other ish type uh, of um, theme. Okay, very good. So. Uh, it's it's fruitful ground to be plowed let's say that um so i'm very excited about that and this is basically what i'm trying to tell you is go watch gray's video on this and i think she might have an earlier video about memory sorrow and thorn too and you should watch that as well um she's been putting out a lot of really good videos lately to be honest um but if you're not subscribed to gray area definitely subscribe and check out that one specifically about um Lightbringer and the Weirwoods. I forget what the title of it is. If one of my mods could look it up here in the next couple of minutes, that'd be awesome. Uh, but definitely go to Gray Area's channel and check that out. So you'll be filled in on that stuff when we do uh, that episode. So, and uh, yeah, I see Disputed Lands vouching for Gray in the chat. Uh, you've, you've worked with Gray a couple of times, haven't you, Amanda? So um, we haven't actually did any videos or any collaborations, but we've, we've actually Skyped... Um, in the past, and we have a lot of we have a lot of things in common because we're both nurses, and um, I, mm. I have a riot with her, and we chat sometimes on the DMs and Twitter and stuff. And um, yeah, she's she's just not only does she make it amazing videos, but she's a really an amazing person too, which you know makes it just even more cool um, that you know she she's just an awesome person on top of all of that. So um, yeah, yeah, check check her out, Gray Area. What I love about Gray is that she's very good. She's got a a good knowledge of mythology uh, and symbolism, uh, but she's, instead of making like two hour videos like me, she's making, you know, the shorter ones that do a lot better on YouTube. She's very popular, uh, but she's constantly slipping in little bits of myth and symbolism, but never like, you know, dwelling too long on it. Uh, in the way that I, of course, would I'd spend like half an hour or something on this one thing. So I always love that because I watch her videos and I'm like, oh, I get a little wink there. I'm like, OK, yeah, you know, you know what's up. That's cool. So, yeah, yeah there's a lot to enjoy for Mythheads in Gray's videos. And frequently I find her getting to some of the same ideas 
like she's on to the idea that Azor High is the Night's King, um, which, you know, there's a lot of people that have sort of sniffed at that, but that's definitely something that I've figured out through symbolism. Uh, and she came at it a, di- a different way. Um, so, yeah, well, I guess um, there it is. And I see the link appearing. Thank you, Jojo Lady Dane. So let's uh, let's let's go ahead and tackle Colin's essay here. Um, if you guys would be down, we can maybe take turns reading it. So it's not just me reading. Um, and let me give you the link for it so you can pull it up. He actually has started a blog. Um, it's really just a place for him to put his essays. I don't know that he's like um, trying to launch a giant enterprise, um, but you know how these things start. They always start as like dipping a toe in the water and sooner or later you're wearing costumes and hosting live streams. So who knows? But here's the, here's the link. It's called the eight spoke WordPress page and it's right there. And painkiller and Amanda, you can grab it right out of the, out of the chat there and pull it up. So you have the text. And it. uh, it's cleverly called We Should Fly Back, <laughs> a reverse reading of brand three. Pretty good stuff. So who would like to begin? Because I'd like to pop a cough drop in right now. Okay, I will go ahead and begin. Um, Thank you. Inspired by LML's last essay, I decided to take a look at another short chapter that's rich with symbolism to see if two can be read backwards for hints and clues about some of the mysteries in A Song of Ice and Fire. Turns out this chapter works in the same way. I don't want to give too much away here at the beginning, so let's dig right in and go through this chapter from start to finish to get an idea of all the themes and symbolism in it. So falling down, when you read the chapter forward, It's all about Brands coming into power as a green seer. He's powerless at the start, falling, failing, but wakes up with his third eye open in the end. The chapter starts with Brand thinking. It seemed as though he had been falling for years. After a quick flashback to clay replica of himself being flung from a roof, moon destruction alert, we get a sense of his surroundings. The ground was far below him. He could barely make it out through the gray mist that whirled around him. But he could feel how fast he was falling, and he knew what was waiting for him down there. He's surrounded by mists, something that immediately reminds us of the others. The others are the sons of the mist, the milk snakes, the sons of the tree, the ice moon brothers, or pretty much any other name of the mountains of the moon you can pick. But a more explicit comparison to the others, to the mist, is made by Tormund. Tormund turned back. You know nothing. You killed a dead man, I, I heard. Man's killed a hundred. A man can fight the dead, but when their masters come, when the white mists rise up, how do you fight a mist crow? Shadows with teeth, air so cold it hurts to breathe, like a knife inside your chest, You don't know, you do not know, you cannot know. Can a court, can a sword cut cold? Somebody want to take the rest? I can do it. Uh, The masters of the dead, the cold shadows, the mists, burr. On top of that, it's also cold and dark where Bran is falling. It was cold here in the darkness. There was no sun, no stars, only the ground below coming up to smash him and the gray mists, and the whispering voice. 
cold, dark, sunless, and starless. It feels like it's been going on for years. That sounds a lot like the way everyone's favorite toothless oracle, Old Nan, describes the long night. Oh so my! Here, let's, let, hang on, let's let's do the thing where if somebody's reading the main one, somebody else will do the quote. So it's has that good balance. So here, let me get the quote. Oh my sweet summer child. Oh, hold on. <clears throat> hey, my sweet summer child. Old Nan said quietly. What do you know of fear? Fears for the winter, my little lord, when the snows fall a hundred feet deep and the ice wind comes howling out of the north. Fear is for the long night, when the sun hides its face for years at a time, and little children are born and live and die all in darkness, while the dire wolves grow gaunt and hungry, and the white walkers move through the woods. <laughs> Bran, too, is afraid while fa- uh, while falling after the three-eyed crow tells him he's going to die for, for realsies. Uh, and he should be, according to Old Nan's stories. He's experiencing the long night, after all. Now that we know that Bran is in the middle of a, of a symbolic long night, and he feels like that has been the case for years, let's quickly go back to the third paragraph of this chapter that we skipped about the clay replica of himself. Maester Lewin made a little boy of clay, baked him till he was hard and brittle, dressed him in Bran's clothes, and flung him off a roof. Bran remembered the way he shattered. But I never fall, he said, falling. Something getting bait and shattering is like a moon wandering too close to the sun, getting bait and cracking, especially when it's flung from a roof, where the roof represents the heavens, the sky, the celestial realm. Now we have a flashback to our long night causing moon disaster, right at the start of a chapter that already sounds like the long night. We also know another significant figure in the series that was surrounded by the cold of the long night for years and broke something important. So as cold and death filled the earth, the last hero determined to seek out the children in the hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. He set out into the deadlands with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities. One by one, his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog, and his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it, and the others smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with pale, packs of pale white spiders as big as hounds. Oh, wait, that was all supposed to be an old man voice. Oh, I got to do it all again. No, I'm kidding. I'm do it again. That'd, be, that'd be too much. I won't be able to read afterwards, but uh, carry on. <laughs> Could Bran be acting out the last hero's journey in this chapter? Well, let's get back to Bran 3 and find out, shall we? The next thing that happens there is that uh, Bran meets the three-eyed crow, hands him some corn, and continues falling, with the ground getting closer and closer. He's now able to distinguish certain things below him. Bran looked down. He could see mountains now, the peaks white, their peaks white with snow, and the silver thread of rivers in dark woods. He closed his eyes and began to cry. He's still in the realm of the others, with snowy mountains, white peaks. Think of the icy spires we'll see later in this chapter, in silver ri- rivers in dark woods. Let's jump back to the prologue of Game of Thrones for a quick second for a quote that clearly links this line to the others. We should start back, Garrett urged, as the woods began to grow dark around them. 
The woods growing dark is a sign that the others are coming. In another essay, I've already linked silver to the others. So by the I way, guys, you can find that other essay on Collins' uh, WordPress there, just yes. FYI. Carry mm-hmm. on. So I won't repeat that here, <laughs> but just think of their reflective armor with patterns that ran like moonlight on water and how the moon is often described as silver. The dark woods and icy symbols remind us that this part of Bran's dream is ta- is still taking part during the symbol- symbolic long night. Uh, the crow keeps telling Bran that he needs to fly and that he needs to look down. By doing so, Bran can see the whole realm and everyone in it, as George tells us. He sees Winterfell with Rob and Hodor and the weirwood brooding over its pool, lifting its eyes from the pool and staring at Bran. The weirwood noticing Bran is like the old gods acknowledging him, judging him, and deciding whether to help. By the fact that he learns to fly at the end of the chapter, I assume they deemed him worthy or perhaps he was the last one with enough green gift to replace the last green seer it would give a whole new meaning to the phrase last hero like they picked the boy with the crippled legs last in gym class i digress when bran (laughs) looks easy east from uh winterfell he sees his mother heading into a storm the storm is gathering ahead of them a vast dark roaring lashed by lightning but somehow they could not see it. The storm his mother is heading towards represents the others and their army of undead. At the time of writing, we're still waiting for the Winds of Winter, which is another nickname we could give um, to the others. They bring the icy cold air after all, like Tormund just told us, and Old Nan describes an ice, an ice wind that comes howling out of the north. I have an upcoming essay dedicated all to exploring the association of the others and wind and storms, since this is mentioned all throughout the series, but that'll ta- still take a while to finish. The fact that they could not see the storm is a meta nod to the fact that all of Westeros is ignoring the upcoming in- invasion of the others into the realm. And the if, li- I, could just, if mm-hmm. I could just jump in, I just want to agree and say that, yeah, a lightning storm that nobody can see coming, that's definitely the others, but carry on. Mm-hmm. Uh, The lightning mentioned here is also found as pale fire in the series, a form of burning cold like the others. It's also associated with them through Waymar's sword, because after it's been struck by the blade of an other, Will describes it as... We found what was left of the sword a few feet away, the end splintered and twisted like a tree struck by lightning. So if the lightning is the others, then the lashed by lightning could be seen as lashed by the others. And who gets lashed by the others, you ask? The undead army full of zombies under their control, of course. Since the others control their whites, they can be seen as their slaves. And slavers often control their slaves by whipping them. The fact that the storm getting lashed by lightning is vast and dark could hint at that a part of the army is made up of former black brothers of the Night's Watch, like a small, uh, like small Paul, Othor, Jaffer, etc. But it works without that connection too. In the South, Bran sees more of his family. And I also just want to say I do like that idea of lashing and lightning being the idea of like enslaving, because the mm-hmm. when the tree is struck by lightning, it becomes a slave essentially. Um, so that that kind of works for me and. When when Waymar is essentially struck by the lightning swords of the others, he then becomes a slave too. Uh, so and that would work with, especially with um, um, 
uh, the Giscari and also Pentos, who has um, a scourge as their as their like symbol for justice, and that is just basically uh, a thing that whips people. And then the, the Night's Watch are also enslaved as well. So mm-hmm. here's the quote. So the, Colin's saying, in the south, Bran sees more of his family as we continue with the chapter. And it says, he looked south and saw the great blue-green rush of the trident. He saw his father pleading with the king, his face etched in grief. He saw Sansa crying herself to sleep at night. And he saw Arya watching in silence and holding her secrets hard in her heart. There were shadows all around them. One shadow was dark as ash, with the terrible face of a hound. Another was armored like the sun, golden and beautiful. Over them both loomed a giant in armor made of stone. But when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. In terms of the long night and Bran's last hero journey to save the world, seeing his family in their hardships is like the champions he's lost, the companions he's lost. Apart from Rob, Lewin, and Hodor, all of his loved ones that he sees are beyond his reach for now, lost to him. Arya's hard heart ties in nicely with Lady Stoneheart in the roles of Mercy and Cat. She'll um, she'll play later, too, for what it's worth here. It says there were shadows all around them, and a giant with thick with darkness and thick black blood. The others are referred to as pale shadows. So if Bran hasn't lost his family to the others in the darkness, symbolically, it's about to happen. After this, Bran takes a quick look um, further east across to Essos before heading north to the Wall and beyond. Finally, he looked north. He saw the walls shining like blue crystal and his bastard brother John sleeping alone uh, in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. And he looked past the wall, past endless forest cloaked in snow, past the uh, frozen shore and the great blue-white rivers of ice and the dead plains where nothing grew or lived. North and north and north he looked to the curtain of light at the end of the world and then beyond that curtain. He looked deep into the heart of winter, And then he cried out, afraid, as the heat of his tears burned on his cheeks. All right, let's flip it around, painkiller. I'll start Mm -hmm. reading. Amanda, I'm letting you off the hook. You're trying to read from your phone. It looks very difficult. So I'm going to – I appreciate the valiant effort, but, yeah, I'll – yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll let you off the hook. If you want to get some of the book quotes in, that's cool. But, um, yeah, there you go. Uh, Gregory Namuth says, got to go. I'll finish this tomorrow. Thanks, man. You on next week. Yeah, I'm every week, Greg. I'm here every week for you, buddy. Like I said, it's either going to be, um, it might be on the Between Two Weirwoods channel next week. Uh, if it's the gray area one, it will be on the Between Two Weirwoods channel. So make sure that you are subscribed to the Between Two Weirwoods YouTube channel, which has a number two in the middle of the words between and Weirwoods. And that's how you find it. Uh, in any case, continuing with the essay. So here, Bran sees his brother, a member of the Night's Watch, dying, or something close to dying at least. Another comparison gone. This is like the last hero seeing all of his friends die, essentially. Bran's looking around, seeing his family members that are either going to die or facing death. He sees John freezing. And then when he looks into the heart of winter, he sees terrible things. There was nothing below him. There was nothing below him now but snow and cold and death. A frozen wasteland where jagged blue white spires of ice waited to embrace him. They flew up at him like spears. He saw the bones of a thousand other dreamers impaled upon their points. He was desperately afraid. So still falling, still failing to fly, he sees a landscape of blue-white spires of ice with people 
dreamers, impaled on them. Firstly, these blue-white icy spires are similar to the swords of the others, with their pale blue coloring and icy symbolism. I've talked about that at length before, and again, this is Colin's other essay on his uh, WordPress page. Uh, as have others, no pun intended, so no need to repeat that. Waymar, this is great, I love this. Waymar, a failed last hero figure, dies through the swords of the others. And here, the last hero figure, Bran, is about to die because of a similar type of icy spikes, just like Waymar. Secondly, however, we also know that another type of object that loves to impale dreamers is weirwood roots. Think of Bloodraven and the other seers in his network of caves being impaled on the weirwood roots like Odin on his tree. To me, the sign about icy spires in the heart of winter sounds a lot like an icy version of the weirwood net. We've also theorized before that there is a division in the weirwood net between a domain for the others and a domain for the green seers, kind of like the wall is in the real world uh, division. And this is just another clue about that. And I would add, guys, that Waymar was pierced with one of those sword shards that comes from the struck by lightning tree sword. So, and I, I compared that as an icy version of the weirwood root through the eye. So Colin's picking up on the exact same idea here, essentially. <clears throat> uh, everything Brand describes between the wall and the heart of winter is the domain of the others, a place mankind should stay out of. Forests cloaked in snow again tells us about the trees, weirwoods turning to ice, like the ice spires could actually be frozen weirwoods. Who knows? If LML's moon meteor theory is right, yeah, maybe, then a magical moon meteor landing inside a grove of weirwoods could have turned part of the weirwood net and its associated green seers into the others. And I would say that's true on a symbolic level, even if it's not literally true. I have put that forward, that idea that the the moon meteors uh, would like to poison Westeros the same way that a shy is poisoned, uh, but the weirwoods are somehow like transmuting and mitigating and containing that poison. But part of that fallout might be the other. So picking back up with Colin's essay, it says, Bran sees great blue-white rivers of ice and the dead plains where nothing grew or lived. The blue-white coloring is a trademark of the others with their pale blue swords, their lightning associations, and their pale-skinned slave whites with burning blue eyes. Since they control the dead, their domain should hold plains where nothing grows or lived. This takes me back to the idea that the wall was built by the others to keep mankind out of their frozen domain up north. So after Bran is scared shitless of this icy danger, he remembers his father's words to him about being brave and flies. And as he does so, he clears away the darkness. Check this out. Wings. Oh. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Wings unseen drank the wind and filled and pulled him upward. The terrible needles of ice receded below him. The sky opened up above. He did it. He ended the long night, the symbolic long night, in this coma dream anyway. <clears throat> the sky opens up, meaning the darkness is ending and the ice receding. Then he wakes up in Winterfell to find a serving woman dropping a basin of water and his wolf leaf leaping onto his bed. A pair of yellow eyes looked into his own, shining like the sun. His name is Summer, he said. Summer and the sun are here. Winter and its darkness is gone. Last hero, Bran, has saved the day. I really love this because we always talk about, like, how do you clear away the long night? Well, I'm not, we're still not sure, but we know a green seer just did it. He, like, cleared the skies. So that's pretty cool. It shows you that there is some method or instrument of clearing away all that smoke. I mean, maybe it's just wind, I guess. 
We need a we need a windy green seer. Well, oh 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 hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When Vermeer dies, he goes into Thistle, goes into the Weirwood, but then he's like a wind. He's mm-hmm. born on the breeze, and the children on Cold Hands' elk even like look up at the at the passing breeze. So maybe that's it. Maybe the green seer needs to die and just like turn into the wind and just like blow away all the smoke. That would be cool. Uh, Ravenous Reader, are you watching? Are you in the chat? I don't think she is, but I think she'll like that idea. That would make a certain amount of sense. So, okay, let's, sorry, I'm vamping. Let's so, go, keep... actually, let me add one thing, just yeah, because um, there is, uh, of course, Nissa Nissa, there's a lot of Green Seer stuff associated with, you know, our weirwood goddess. Um, and uh, I had uh, found some connections between Nissa Nissa and the tale of the Little Mermaid, the Hans Christian Andersen version. And um, one of the things that actually happened in the Hans Christian Andersen version is she became one of the spirits of the wind um, at, at the very final end. And you don't fucking say. Yes. Yeah. She became <laughs> a spirit of the wind. And in um, The Tempest, which is a, a really cool Shakespeare play, uh, there's this character named Ariel, who is also a spirit that was trapped inside a tree. And um, Ariel was also a, a wind, a spirit of the wind. So it's interesting there too. Spirits of the air. Yes. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. I feel like that's got potential. And of course, horns make wind. Um, you know, I mean, the others are very windy. So maybe you need wind to fight wind. Uh, we know Euron is like causing the favorable winds by performing blood sacrifice. So. There you go. Yeah, We're always talking about ice and fire and water, but maybe we need to pay more attention to air and wind. No, I, I mentioned um, the connection between green seers and the control of the wind in my um, essay on uh, Garth and the Great King. And, oh, and sorry, the rest, the rest of us there. have been ignoring the wind, and Amanda has been paying I, attention to it. Just saying. Yeah, no, I agree just with her because um, in the summer <laughs> islands, in the summer islands, uh, the wind makes the stones sing, and it tells people what to do. Oh, that's true. Yeah, and um, and way before me, Evita also on Westeros.org, um, Evita MFGS, I think, uh, she did um, a lot awesome, of stuff with Bran and the wind and Green Seer control of the wind. So it's it's a thing. It is. Can you actually elaborate on that for like uh, 60 seconds or so? Yeah. Um, so, um, okay, so just take, for instance, the... the the concept of the storm god a, a storm god has you know you would think that he would have control of the wind when you look at the green seers the way that they communicate is through the trees and the wind when there's a conversation with bran and osha and he's asking you know how do i listen to the gods and she's just like look around listen open up your ears and bran responds it's just the wind and osha responds who do you think controls the wind if not the gods and so it, it's right there. OSHA's telling us right there what we need to know about that connection. And you even see it in, as, as soon as the prologue. Um, it's not just the trees that are trying to keep Waymar from going forward. It's also the wind. The wind is actually into his face, and he's going into the wind, and it's going against him. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a thing. Check it out. Cool. And real quick, JoJo Lady Dane is asking uh, where she can find the episode where I've got all the God's eye explanation and 
I actually haven't done a proper mythical astronomy God's Eye episode. It's sort of leaked into a bunch of them. But the best um, concentrated God's Eye stuff is actually in the cave paintings live stream that I did on the History of Westeros channel, where we went super nerdy on all those um, all that cave art that was in the Dragonstone Cave on the TV show a couple seasons ago because it had a lot of God's Eye symbols. And we did a bunch of visuals, too. So I even explained the God's Eye with, like, all the images. And uh, it's a really fun one. That's actually on History of Westeros' channel. Um, and it's called Cave Paintings with LML or something like that. So that's where you can you, find that. You can also find some in your Baleful Bard episode with Baylor of the Evil Eye as well. Oh, yeah, okay. That's probably the other good one. Thank you, Amanda. You know, mm-hmm. better than me. I've, I've written a lot of stuff. Forgotten more stuff. You have written a lot of stuff. <laughs> so... Uh, I was looking back on it the other day. I was scrolling through my table of contents and I just kept scrolling and scrolling. And I was like, damn, dude. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Piled up. But thanks again. Thanks to all you guys. So enabling it to happen. So I hope you like it. All right. Let's pick back up with the essay here. So Bran wakes up and uh, we've got the warm bath and summer and all those summer symbols after Bran wakes up and saves the day. So in the forward direction, this chapter is all about Bran as a last hero figure. It starts with him in a long night scenario, surrounded by mists and darkness, falling, failing. After traveling south, east, west, a long hero's journey, a last hero's journey that feels like last, it's lasting for years, during which he sees loss, grief, hardship, and a, the apparent death for his, of his loved ones. Then he heads north into the heart of winter. When all seems lost and he appears to crash into the ground, just before he's defeated and impaled on the ice spires of the others, like Waymar, he gets help from a green seer and flies. He opens up his third eye and wakes up, ending the long night, to find that summer has arrived. Basically, Bran the Last Hero has used the magic of the children of the forest and the green seers to end the long night and declare summer. But what happens when we press reverse and play all of this backwards? We find a whole nother story. Check it out. All right, Painkiller, will you take another turn real quick? Uh, sure. Uh, following up, when we press the rewind button at the end of this chapter, the the order and uh, the direction of the events will change direction. Up becomes down, life becomes death, and gaining becomes losing. To quickly summarize what happened in the forwards reading, Bran is surrounded by darkness and mists, representing the long night. Bran has a meet and feed with a green seer, three-eyed crow. Bran sees, travels, all across the realm, sees John die, symbolically loses his companions. Bran travels to the heart of winter. Bran learns to, fr- to fly. Uh, Bran opens his eyes, ends the, lo- the night, and finds summer. Instead of coming into his powers, we read the chapter backwards. We see Bran losing his touch with the old gods. Instead of changing the long night into summer... He now loses summer and ends up in the darkness of the long night. Instead of traveling towards the heart of winter, he now starts his journey from that cold, dead place. In reverse, we start with summer and his warmth, when all is well during the daytime in Winterfell. But then summer and his eyes that shine like the sun disappear from Bran's view. A serving woman shatters a water basin in a room high in one of Winterfell's towers, and Bran closes his eyes to sleep like the start of the night. Wait, something shattering in a tower at the start of the night? That sounds a lot like a moon shattering in the sky and causing the long night, right? The tower, the tops <clears throat> of towers are often symbolic of the celestial realm, so it would fit. 
the water basin could represent the swamps at the neck or the arm of Dorne that shattered and splashed water tsunamis everywhere. To be fair, if we were consistent in reversing the events, this would actually have to be a shattered water basin getting mended in the hands of the serving woman. If the basin represents the moon, which we see reflected on bodies of water quite often throughout the uh, the series, this could represent the resurrection of moon goddess Nissa Nissa. But I somehow like the first ex- explanation better. Okay, so let me cut in here to say that the basin of water is definitely a moon symbol. It's Think of the moon pool in Bravos. It's, it's the same idea, like the silver sea. The water is a mirror, um, and it's a round mirror. So that's definitely the moon. It's probably the ice moon. And when he talks about, when Colin talks about, if you play this in reverse, it's a shattered bowl of water and bowl sort of reforming. That reminds me a lot of Waymar reforming his sword from all the sword fragments. And the, the shattered sword is the meteor shower in the forwards reading. And so what he's doing in the reverse reading is picking up moon meteor fragments and forging them into a sword, which makes perfect sense, right? And so that's what I think is happening here. We have this broken moon symbol coming back together as this, what turns out to be evil green seer kind of wakes up. So he's, he's reforging a sword, I think, with this, with this bowl. But go ahead and carry on. Would that go with um, Danny bathing in the pool of um, uh, in the yes, shadow of the that, mountain with the shattering and uh, reshattering and all of reforming. that? Reforming, yes. Reforming, the the yeah. image of the moon, it says shattering and reforming. Exactly right. And uh, it also it's the same thing when Aaron Dampere says, when the moon has drowned and come again. It's a, it's a rebirth of the moon, which can be the rebirth of the moon goddess. It can also be making Lightbringer from the corpse of the moon, essentially. And as I said, you know, just like Nissa Nissa's soul and spirit and energy went into Lightbringer, you know, the moon meteors go into Lightbringer. So that's, that's what's going on here. And it could go for um, the first forging of Lightbringer. I mean, that was a water, right? That he used water to temper the sword, but then it shattered again and he had to pick up the pieces and reforge it. Yeah, those three forgings always give me a headache, but yeah, it, it could be related. Yeah. Um, grumble, okay. grumble. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Any, anyway, now that Bran is asleep, he's flying with his third eye open right from the start of this symbolic long night. All throughout uh, Bran's arch uh, flying is the equivalent of obtaining green, see- uh, green seeing abilities. Think of the line, you will never walk again, Bran, but you will fly. So here we have a green seer at the start of the long night, basically going into the weirwood net and into his green dreams with his regular eyes closed and his third eye open. And while the moment where Bran learns how to fly in the forwards version should equate to forgetting how to fly in this backwards reading, that doesn't mean he leaves the net or loses this ability here. When played in reverse, Bran is actually falling up, which already looks like flying, but is also something they tend to do under the sea as Patchface describes. Patchface sprawled half on top of him, Motley Fool's face pressed close to his own. He had lost his tin helm with its antlers and bells. Under the sea, under the sea you fall up, he declared. I know, I know, oh, oh, oh. Giggling, the fool rolled off, bounded to his feet, and did a little dance. <laughs> and yes, I keep I keep that right by my computer 
ready to go at all times. So. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right thank you lml and thanks to ravenous readers brilliant under the sea wordplay we know that this under the sea is actually describing the weirdwood net upward falling bran is still in there still in the sea that is the weirdwood net i've theorized somewhere that the creepy fool is actually talking from the perspective of the others. So it would make sense if Bran would now be inhabiting a part of the weirwood net that belongs to the others. And indeed, Bran's upward falls start from the heart of winter, surrounded by those icy spires that could be frozen weirwoods with thousands of other dreamers impaled on them like icy weirwood ro uh, roots. In this dream, we learn that this place lies beyond the curtain of light at the end of the world. So this enforces the idea that there is a division between the heart of winter and the rest. We actually see the same idea at the end of the chapter as he wakes up. The crow opened its beak and caught at him, a shrill scream of fear, and the gray mist shuddered and swirled around him and ripped away like a veil, and he saw the crow was really a woman. I'll, I'll go ahead and take over. We'll flip it around mm -hmm. again. So when reading this part forwards, it's Bran ripping away the curtain of light, that veil of tears between life and death. He becomes an immortal green seer through the weirwood net, wings spread and third eye open. In reverse, he puts it in place, like he's the one to divide the weirwood net into the part of the green seers and the part of the others. It could have well happened through the sacrifice of Nissa Nissa, since there is a shrill scream of fear and a shudder at the same time. Shuddering is something we see in other places where Nissa Nissa and her scream of agony and ecstasy are depicted. The red priestess shuddered. Blood trickled down her thigh, black and smoking. The fire was inside her in agony and ecstasy, filling her, searing her, transforming her. I don't assume, and I being Colin, of course, Colin Longstrider, wandering spoke of the eighth wheel. If you're tuning in late, we are reading Colin's essay because it is very good. And we summoned a ravenous reader, too. <laughs> ah, we did. I see that. Yes. Uh, hello, princess. Anyways, from one princess to another princess. Painkiller Jane says hello. In any case, uh, I don't assume the servants at Winterfell hate Bran. So the serving woman uttering this initial scream of fear is most likely ecstatic that he's awake again as she quickly runs away to tell the rest of the castle. That means that she's both afraid and ecstatic in rapid succession. So that's agony and ecstasy. That's a, a very good way to depict it. George frequently does the agony and ecstasy thing that way by giving you like a scream of joy or something like that. So to summarize what we've seen so far, we see a green seer entering or creating a frozen part of the weirwood net and starting the long night. The first other perhaps? Well, let's see what happens next as we travel further backwards. Now that he's started the long night, it's time for Bran to invade the realms of men. And we see him travel to the Wall, east to Essos, south to the Trident, etc., instead of north like we did in the forwards reading. That's pretty much the story of the invasion of the others, since there are legends about the Long Night scattered all across Planetos. His first stop is the Wall, where he sees his brother John. Though we really don't see Bran losing all of his companions in the forwards' last hero journey, we do see him lose a brother of the Night's Watch when he, his brother John's body seems to die. Well, what's the reverse of having your companions die? Having them resurrected, of course. <clears throat> that's the, you know, pausing his essay. That's, of course, you know, the whole point of the Green Zombies story and the way that it overlays with Waymar's story is that, you know, the people that died then come back to life. So that makes sense to me. 
So in reverse order, we could see the cold corpse of Jon Snow coming back to life at the wall. Wait, a resurrected corpse of a Night's Watchman at the wall? Well, first of all, that sounds a lot like Othor and Jafer Flowers, two other uh, whites, whited Night's Watchmen at the wall who were under control of the others and attacked the living. Stretching this idea a bit, we could suggest that a resurrected John, in this case, is symbolically like a white two bound to the others. Remember, we're reading this backwards for symbolism. I'm not saying that John will be like this and wins when it comes out in 2125. Colin, shame on you. No, no wins at wins will take forever jokes. I will not have your cynicism. That's all right. Fine, whatever. Um, and by the way, remember that one of the ideas of that reverse prologue is that the others would like to make John a new Knight's King. So it's possible that they will get control of him for a time and then relinquish it. Or it's possible John will simply have to like somehow embrace the others at the end in order to pacify them. Uh, there's lots of ways that this could happen where John is sort of other-like. And if, if nothing else, he's at least the good other. So in any case, going back to Colin's essay, all of this is starting to sound a lot like a certain historical figure we know of that also enslaved the Night's Watch, worshipped the others, and loved corpses. He brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself a king. And with strange sorceries, he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For 13 years, they had ruled Knight's king and his corpse queen till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Jormund of the Wildlings had joined to uh, to free the watch from bondage after his fall when it was found he had been sacrificing to the others all records of the knight's king had been destroyed his very name forbidden well, i would suggest that brand's backward dream is actually the story about knight's king and the rise of the others the first half of the backwards retelling was all about the others coming from the weirwood net and traveling south to the wall I'd like to show that with the clues from the second half, we can hang the Night's King archetype on backwards brand too. This could be interpreted in two ways, I reckon. First, we could picture Night's King as an other himself, traveling down from the heart of winter and taking control of the Night's Watch, binding them to his will, dead or not, and using them to invade the rest of the world. I tend to lean more towards a second option. Here, the others come south towards the wall, where they seduce the Lord's commander of the Night's Watch to join their story, like the story Old Nan tells us, and then use him and his men, probably dead, to further that cause. In terms of the symbolism, we can say that Night's King then becomes equivalent to the others, and so would Bran. After all, we're talking about symbolism and archetypes, not actual physical people per se. In the last part of this essay, I'm going to do just that, combining both the invading other symbolism and Night's King symbolism onto Bran. And let me just pause and say that I tend to think it's actually the first interpretation Colin, where it's um <clears throat> brand is like the night king essentially raising the watch and enslaving them um but who knows we'll see or just raising the army of the dead uh but in any case uh from the wall backwards brand travels east and south where he sees people fleeing from the lightning storm that is the others and the invasion the ship his mother on in the forwards reading is traveling towards the storm but in the reverse reading now it's traveling away from the storm instead of towards it. So everything is reversed. And essentially, the long night is in full effect and people are running from the others. That makes sense. Next up are the two lines about the Weirwood in Winterfell and the Godswood. In reverse, we get the Weirwood staring at Bran and then averting its eyes and staring back at its own reflection. The Weirwood averting its eyes from Bran could be acknowledgement of him abandoning the old gods and vice versa. And that, again, makes sense. As a matter of fact, 
It could tell us that Bran has left the original Weirwood net, that it's been closed off behind him, and he's now become a full other. A similar thing would have happened to Night's King. As a brother of the Watch, he would have sworn his oath to the Weirwoods, would have worshipped the old gods. Um, upon his defeat, we are told that he found that they found out he was actually worshipping the others to the icy mists, uh, meaning he would have forsaken the trees, abandoned his gods like Bran did here, and like the Bloodstone Emperor did, I'm mad at it. Yeah, and I was going to pipe in, like, that's kind of the Azor High thing, right? It's, he goes against the gods, so. Now, while Rebecca here at Winterfell, we see his brother Rob practicing with real steel and Hodor, the simple giant, carrying an anvil. You guys are going to love this, Amanda and Painkiller Jane. Check this out, because we talked about a lot of this stuff that he's about to mention. So remember what Old Nan said about the defeat of the Night's King. Night's King was a Stark defeated by another Stark, the Stark of Winterfell and the brother to the Night's King, to be precise. What if Rob is symbolizing Brandon the Breaker here, practicing with real steel, like dragon steel, to defeat Night's King? He's the only Stark we see in actual Winterfell in this dream, and he's Bran's brother. So he definitely fits the bill. And of course, Rob definitely has some Zora High symbolism, especially when he, Atheon, sees dead Rob in the dream, and him and Ghost walk into the hall with wounds and burning eyes and stuff. That's pretty... In any case, the Stark of old... Uh, Brandon the Breaker was joined by Jorman, a wildling from north of the Wall, and together they would have sandwiched Night's King at the Wall. George describes this battle technique in more places, in many places, and refers it to it as the hammer and the anvil. And who do we see carrying an anvil in Brand's vision? Hodor, the simple giant. I realize it's a bit of a stretch, actually, Colin, it's not a stretch at all. Uh, giants live north of the Wall and joined Mance's army of wildlings in the main storyline, too. So we could count Hodor the Simple Giant as a wildling. Yeah, and Hodor, uh, yeah, he definitely could represent Jorman. That makes a ton of sense to me. And Jorman has a lot of giant symbolism, and um, the horn wakes giants in the earth, so on and on and on. Even Jorman's horn is featured somewhat in the form of the bronze tube Maester Lewin uses when he's playing the part of a starry lookout. That's actually really interesting, uh, the whole idea of the 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 telescope as as a horn, because the horn has to do with the stars and dragons and all that shit. But in any case, Colin says, I see a lot of similarities between the story of the last hero receiving help from the children of the forest to defeat the others and the Stark of Winterfell getting help from the wildlings north of the wall to defeat Night's King. Oh, that kind of makes sense, actually. In both cases, a Stark, pretty sure the last hero was a Stark too, gets help from creatures that nowadays, at least, live north of the wall to defeat creatures with icy death symbolism uh, and people whom they are tied, uh, people tied to their will. For all we know, it's the same story told in different ways, evolving through the ages. After losing touch with the old, uh, actually, Painkiller, you want to take over here? Um, after losing touch with the old gods and losing sight of Winterfell, Bran keeps on falling up until he also loses sight of the three-eyed crow, the last green seer, and his absolute last line um, to the weirwoods. He is surrounded by mists and darkness. It's almost like the theory about Euron being a former protege of the three-eyed crow that has turned to the dark side, right? I've mentioned before in another essay that I think the others coming out of the Weirwood net are like a defense mechanism gone haywire, and I'm probably not the only one to think this. The Weirwood turning away from Bran in this reverse reading supports that. The others have lost their touch with the Greenseers and have become the enemy of all living things, including the trees. 
the help the last hero receives from the children of the forest to defeat them sounds like creators trying to right their own wrong. And yes, I believe the children are partly responsible for the creation of the others in one way or another. <laughs> the phrase White Walkers of the Woods is to me pretty clear about the others have um, that have their origin in the same type of magic as the children, the green seers in their trees. I absolutely agree with that yeah, honestly me yeah i mean uh remember the the quote that i sent you um that we were talking about on twitter earlier where the squires who are children uh make all these snowmen and make all these commanders and then a storm comes darkness mist uh, all this blowing wind comes and makes them all these giant monsters Totally. Yeah, we're all on the same page here for mm -hmm. sure. We're almost at the start. Old Nan tells us that the Night King, the Night's King is a man without fear. He had been the third. Oh, Amanda, you want to get in? Are you, are you, do you have it up? I do. He had been the 13th man to lead the Night's Watch, she said. A warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, she would add. For all men must know fear. As we, reach, as we reach the beginning of the chapter, we reach the point where, in the forwards version, Bran still thinks it's a dream. He tells the crow, crow that he'll wake up when he hits the ground, showing us he's not afraid. Later, when he sees the heart of winter and is told he'll die when he hits the ground, he does get afraid. So in the backwards reading, Bran actually loses that fear. Give him another trait of the Night's King archetype. To inverse some of the important items from the list of the beginning of this section, Bran loses summer, starts his night by closing his eyes. Bran flies, starting from the heart of winter. Bran sees John coming back to life at the wall. Bran loses touch with the old gods, the weirwood, um, and the green seers, becomes of unafraid. Bran is surrounded by darkness and mist, the long night. This is pretty much the story of a person causing the long night as he goes into the weirwood net, corrupting it and losing touch with the original inhabitants and intents of that net. Of a person then invading the realms of men with icy mists and resurrected corpses bringing cold and darkness. Who that person could be, perhaps it's the Bloodstone Emperor, Azora High, we love to talk about, who might have started the Weirwood Net by sacrificing Nissa Nissa, who might have corrupted that same net by following her in, perhaps uh, splitting off a section that turned to ice, sprouting forth a resurrected corpse queen, uh, nice, uh, Nissa Nissa, and it's spelled N-I-S-A, N-I. Ice A that mm. helped enslave the Night's Watch. I guess we'll have to keep digging and hope we'll ever find definitive answers. Lastly, I would like to say that it would actually fit that a part of Bran symbolically represents Night's King, uh, since according to Old Nan, Night's King was a Stark named Brandon, who sleeps in the same room as Bran is dreaming this dream in this chapter. And Old Nan's words is truth, of course. He was a Stark, the brother of the man who brought him down. She always pinched Bran on the nose then. He would never forget it. He was a Stark of Winterfell, and who can say? Mayhaps his name was Brandon. 
Mayhaps he slept in this very bed in this very room. Now that we're all the way back at the beginning of the chapter, when there is no sun, no stars, only cold, darkness, Bran has become the Night's King, ready to rule his long night. Night's King was only a man by light of day, Old Nan would say, but the night was his to rule, and it's getting dark. So there you go, Colin. Good job, buddy. Officially contributed yes, well to the done. mythical astronomy canon, such as it is. Fire the cannons. <sighs> so pretty cool. You can see why I was excited and thought it would be appropriate to read this. Uh, a lot of tie-ins to the messages that we found in the reverse reading of the Waymar prologue. Um, and we've already mentioned half of these ideas already uh, discussing the Waymar prologue. So you can see how tied in it is. Um, it's all about... The corruption of the Weirbanet, I thought the idea of him creating the veil was really compelling um, because, again, we've, we've seen this partition idea. We know it should happen, you know, with the invasion of the Weirwoods. And essentially, the veil means like part of the Weirwoodnet is dying. It's freezing. Um, in the, in the Vermeer Sixkins prologue, we see uh, a living model of the Weirwoods being frozen. And it happens right before he goes. This is the weirwood tree that he sees. So check this out. In fact, oh, my God, <clears throat> this paragraph is this is the one where he looks up and sees the night white as death and sees a vision of the others in the sky, basically. So check this out. When Vermeer pushed at it, the snow crumbled and gave way, still soft and wet outside. He's pushing at the, um, the door to the tent. Outside, the night was as white as death. Pale, thin clouds danced attendance on a silver moon while a thousand stars watched coldly. He could see the humped shapes of other huts buried beneath drifts of snow, and beyond them the pale shadow of a weirwood armored in ice. To the south and west the hills were a vast white wilderness where nothing moved except the blowing snow. So <clears throat> the weir a pale shadow, that's the term used to describe an other, and others are armored in ice. So this is a weirwood turning into an other. And this is happening right as the army of the dead is marching into town. And it's happening as we've got pale, thin clouds dancing in the sky with cold stars. And I pointed out that that's basically the portrait of an other as a young man. Or the, the dancing, thin, pale clouds are the others who danced with Waymar. And the stars are simply their eyes and they're watching coldly. And they're attending the silver moon. The silver moon is like the night's queen or like the ice moon that they worship here. So you've got this portrait of the others. And then we see a pale weirwood armored in ice. And then we're going to get what? We're going to get a night's king killing a Nissa Nissa and then turning into a cold one-eyed wolf and shit. So, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Terrifying. <laughs> What's that? It's terrifying. It it actually is. Like this whole thing, just reading it backwards, you're like, oh crap, this this is actually a very terrifying story that's going on. Much, much worse than what Brand leads us to believe. Yeah, this again, I good job, Colin. This is a good one. Uh definitely bearing some fruit. And uh I see a lot of applause in the chat here for Colin, so very, very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah, so I, this really does 
you've got uh i like the the shattering bowl reforming uh like a reforming moon and then he's sort of going into this dream world he's uh this time you know he's coming coming from the heart of winter uh and then sort of clouding the land and then going out into all the land and like his mom's running away from the storm and stuff like it's great that's great i love it uh lots of fun so thanks so much colin for contributing amanda painkiller let me turn it over to you for uh any thoughts on any of that amanda i think she's typing <laughs> oh no um so i i really enjoyed it um I think that he had some really good analysis and, and I, I liked, um, I, I liked pretty much the whole thing. Um, I'm, I'm beginning to think that all of the prologues, you know, might be showing us that if, if, you know, we're seeing a pattern here. Um, so I'm kind of interested to see not only the prologues, but also I think we have an epilogue as well. Um, I'm wondering if we need to, what we need to do with the the order of something that starts at the end, um, you know, as like the epilogue, because uh, we do have a bunch of children killing somebody um, at the very end. So that's mm. uh, that's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm that's kind of got my um, the the wires in my brain kind of firing at the moment. Is that epilogue and how that should be? Oh, yeah, that would be that would be like the children resurrecting somebody, mm-hmm. wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of, I don't know. I'm kind of interested to, to look at that too. So that's cool. Very cool. Resurrecting a man who lives in the shadow of his own brother. Cause that's the big thing about him is mm-hmm. that he always lived in the shadow of Tywin. So that would, might be, a an, a bloodstone emperor's or a high thing. Nice. I like that. Jojo Lady Dane says, I'd like someone to do the Clash prologue with Crescent and Mel. Uh, So actually, Colin is thinking about doing that one next uh, because it would be like Melisandre resurrecting Crescent, which could very well foreshadow John's resurrection. And they're inside of a dragon, a frozen stone dragon. They would be resurrecting Crescent, and then he would be leaving to go up to the tower and observe the comet with some gargoyles. So... That sounds like it might make a lot of sense. That sounds like John waking up as the dragon locked in ice and walking out of the dragon's maw. So, yeah. Check, uh, everybody, once again, let me just drop this link one more time to Colin's. Go ahead and talk either one of you guys. I'm just going to drop Colin's link well, in the chat. So on your on your thing about the epilogue, I, I wonder how the, uh, the Storm of Swords epilogue would go with Merit Frey backwards type of situation in old stones too yeah um, that's in old stones oh uh, right hot. so that'd be mm-hmm. that'd be stoneheart taking somebody off the gallows and resurrecting them um mm-hmm. and then yeah they'd walk to okay yeah we'd have to we'll have to take a look at that one yeah prologues and epilogues seem like the obvious ones mm-hmm. to try for sure yeah, and there's so. a lot of lightning because you know he has that um the the issue with um the his head pain and headaches and kind of blacking out and drinking and um, he's always talking about like the lightning and the thunder in his head and everything so mm-hmm. yeah. um that would be kind of cool to read i've done that one forwards luck. before <laughs> yeah what's that one and his uh i love that his name is merit 
you know, as an M M E R I T. And then he's always like, I have bad luck. I have bad luck. And he's, uh, every time he's talking about, um, doing things, uh, um, he doesn't win them by his own merit. He's always like, oh, I have bad luck, and that's why it messes up everything that I try to do correctly. All right, okay, that's funny. Yeah, George loves using names like that, uh, for sure. For sure. So this is, again, this is Mythical Astronomy is an interactive community, guys. So feel free to take this principle and do your own homework and try to read some of these chapters and identify the basic pattern that's happening and then think about if it makes sense going and going backwards especially when you hear talk in a chapter about reversing course or starting back or going back to some place that you went before anything like that it's a, that's the tip-off clue so this definitely seems like a pandora's box here uh <laughs> so like the more these turn up the more you the more sure you are that george is doing doing things this way so mm -hmm. Are we going to talk about Nissa Nissa and uh, the... Oh, I put my antlers on backwards, someone says. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's appropriate, I guess, right? Um, what, I'm sorry, what did you say, Painkiller? Um, I was going to say, are we going to talk about uh, Nissa Nissa and uh, the connection here with the Corpse Queen uh, situation? Yeah, I guess yeah, so. We, I'm, we never I'm did talk up. about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, we uh, didn't even get to it too much. Um, we are getting ready to wrap up here shortly because I know Amanda needs to go. But um, let's go ahead and talk about that. So, yeah, fire away, either one of you guys. <clears throat> Do you want to start? I don't know. Honestly, for me, I've always thought they were like um, Lady Stoneheart. I always thought that was like Nissa Nissa and then the Corpse Queen coming back to life. That's how I always saw it. Um but I could be wrong. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I tend to question the, the corpse um, portion of, of Nissa Nissa, um, or at least the Night's Queen. Um, yeah, me too. Just, I, I tend to question if she was really a corpse or a white walker or what have you. Um, it it's talks about how she had very pale skin, and I'm wondering... You know, there's a lot of stuff with the Valerians with very pale skin and, and also green seers with albinism. It's kind of a, a thing. And so um, I'm wondering if she's just a very pale woman um, or, or children of the forest. I, I'm just wondering if she was just very pale. Um, but yeah, um, but one thing that I do want to mention is in the Hugo of the Hill myth, we have this woman and she's described with these eyes like deep blue pools. And, um, and it's, it's a very kind of striking um, description. And then um, we've also learned, I have a video on kind of this Nissa Nissa monomyth. It's called The Great King's Mermaid Wife. And it shows, at least I tried to show, how um, this woman is possibly a chaste woman or an abducted woman. And in the myth of the Night's King and the Night's Queen, we have a man who's chasing this woman and he, you know, he, he caught her and he loved her and she had like eyes as blue as stars. And um, so we get these, this blue eyes, we get this abducted woman, we get this really, really strongness and it's an archetype. And so um, I, I think that it's very possible that we have another um, version of this myth here. Uh, you know, we, you know, I could be wrong about it, but um, I, I think it's quite possible. There's, um, I've been reading the about Deidre in um, Celtic myth, 
And she's kind of like a Helen analog. She was the most beautiful woman in the world. And her eyes were described as both deep blue pools and also as eyes like blue stars. And so I'm kind of reading about her at the moment, but she's kind of like an uh, abducted woman analog. And I think that that's what our, our nice queen is actually doing is playing on those, those archetypes. So. And obviously you guys see why I chose this banner today. <laughs> yes. What I love about this banner is that the, the eyes are actually purple. The rest of it's blue. I don't know if you can tell, but the eyes are actually purple. So it's pretty fun. It's like a purple-eyed Night's Queen looking out over a frozen forest. I was like, bye, bye, bye. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, <clears throat> there's definitely a connection. I'm just down to hashing out like what exactly it was. Was it some part of Nissa Nissa's spirit inside the Weirwoods, um, either escaping or being forced back out? Was it Azora High trying to raise the corpse of his lost love? Um, you know, was was it, you know, we've also got this idea of like body snatching. You know, what if uh, what if you have um, the spirit of Nissa Nissa coming out and basically take taking control of some sort of ice golem body or or something else? So <clears throat> it looks like Amanda's talking to one of her kids, I think. Just got that cute mom face going on right now. Uh, cool, cool. Well, so yeah. I, I, I definitely I'm hoping to get down to figuring this out as we look at more Sansa stuff in the Eerie, because Sansa is definitely doing that fire to ice transformation. <clears throat> uh, also, Cersei is the other one we need to study, because not only does she have obvious Ice Queen symbolism, she looks like a statue card from ice, or she has a cold, icy look sometimes. Um, even though mostly she's like a fiery Nissa Nissa Catwoman figure. But then when she gets locked in the sept of uh, Baylor, and skin. she gets right, she gets her golden hair cut off. That's like losing her fire. She's imprisoned and locked in ice. And after she comes out of that, I expect to see her doing like Night's Queen things. Um, you know, and she's got Gregor, this monstrous, you know, white knight. Amanda, go ahead. And she's also losing her crown because I think that her hair was also called her crowning glory. Mm-hmm. So she's also possibly losing her crown there too. Hmm. So those are the two things we got to study, I think, to be able to figure this out is, uh, is Sansa and Cersei. And I think that might help us do it. But there's, there's some sort of transformation that goes on. And it's just a matter of like, in what sense is the corpse queen Nissa Nissa. But I, like you, Amanda, do question the idea that she was actually a corpse. Um, I really like Duran Durandon's theory that she was more like an icy version of Melisandre. Um, Melisandre is sort of undead in that she's extended her natural lifespan. We don't really know if she's undergone actual resurrection experience. It seems to me like a gradual transformation. Um, But the point is, if you can do that with fire magic, you can probably do that with ice magic. And we needed to get icy people from somewhere, right? Like somebody that wasn't an ice magic practitioner started doing it and transformed into the first other or the first Night's Queen or something. And so to me, that's what Night's Queen sounds like. Um, but we'll chase it down. We'll figure it out, guys. So it's I enjoy going at the slow pace that we do and sort of just chewing on it um, one theme at a time and making slow progress and 
I feel like it's it's going good. So it's it's pretty exciting. I, I love this this topic of Night's Queen and this and this uh, uh, going in and out of the trees. So final thoughts on that subject? Mm, not too much. <laughs> I really enjoyed this discussion, though. Um, I always love talking about Nissa Nissa, and um, I think that we found some really, really cool um, connections, and the chat was really great today um, with with those super chats and um, kind of some of the finds that we found today. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to um, record this one and put it out on the podcast stream. It's uh, it's a a lot of nuggets in this one. Yeah. A lot of a lot of collaborative ideas and stuff too. This was really great. So we're right at the three hours mark, and I know Amanda needs to go to work. So Amanda, thank you for giving us so much of your time today. Really appreciate it. And the same goes to you, Painkiller Jane. Yeah. Thank your welcome. husband on behalf of us for entertaining the pups. Yes. <laughs> Do you hear them yelling in the background? Sorry. No, we can't at all. He's he's no, kept them quiet enough. He did so it's really good. Him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he so did I, really good. And thanks, Jojo Lady Dane, putting Amanda's channel in the chat. Of course, I assume all of you guys are subscribed to uh, the Disputed Lands, but I'll just remind you to make sure you click the notification bell for both, uh, you know, my channel and the Disputed Lands so that you know when we got a live stream or a new video coming out. And don't forget to subscribe to the Between Two Weirwoods YouTube channel because if um, if I'm able to schedule the, the Gray Area episode next week, it will be on the Between Two Weirwoods channel. So there you go, guys. Uh, that's it. I love you all. You're all beautiful. Thanks, love Amanda, Crowfoot's daughter. And, um, <laughs> and of course, Sandrixian, get well soon. I'm sure she'll watch back. So thanks for all the art and feel better. So that's Thank it, guys. guys. See you next week. Bye-bye. See you next week. Bye. Bye.